just a good old boy, never meaning no harm. Beats all you never saw, been in trouble with the law since the day they was born. Good old boys. I'm Mark. Bog Beef. Today we're joined by the the illustrious Claudius. How you doing? A man of letters. It's always nice when we have someone who actually knows something to come on here and and uh, you know bear the brunt of of uh, the intellectual malpractice we're about to commit of the uh, of the of the southern autodidactism. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Once again, this is going to be a thick topic, so we're not going to fart around very much. We're just going to get into it because uh, I don't know. You people be surprised. Um, like. If you're trying to talk about anything and like you on a podcast and you do one hour, you I mean, that, that is literally like, you know, a, that turns into like a paragraph of discussion. So there you go. So let's just get started. But um, before we get started, WBSApparel.com, get yourself a t-shirt. White I boy can, summer. I can attest I'm wearing my It's the Law in Kennesaw shirt right now, and it is very comfortable. Uh, and, and the missus has adopted the blue, uh, shirt with the lettering as her night shirt, as her night, as her night shirt. So it is, they are completely comfy. Uh, Bog is not pulling your leg when he does this. This is the real deal. Uh, go get them while they're hot. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. So wbsapparel.com, click on the good old boys part. Usually a deal going on or two. Pick one up. Okay. Uh, before we get started. I just want to pitch. I have to, um, you know, there, I have a albatross hanging over my head right now, um, which kind of gets me into a lot of the stuff that sort of bothered me about reading this. I mean, bothered me in a good way. Um, I need to expel something from my mind before we get started. So I'm just going to ask you straight up. Uh, do you, what do you think the ideal punishment, criminal punishment should be for, should be for carjacking <laughs> not stealing a car but carjacking you are operating your motor vehicle it's 5 p.m you're driving home somebody using a gun or physical violence i mean i think very often a gun is involved because you it's a i mean i consider it somewhere in between like robbery and mugging up to like kidnapping because it's not just give me what you got. It's all, there's also some, uh, you're, you're moving somebody against their will at gunpoint. It, it, it partakes of a false imprisonment. Yes. It, 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 they're not free to go. Uh, it also brings up a lot of associations. Y'all know about the secondary location in criminology. Yeah. Uh, where often people who want to do real bad things to you, will snatch you where you are and then take you to a secondary location where they can kind of do whatever they want. I uh, think of there, Ted Bundy, whatever. Uh, that's all wrapped up in there. It's much more than just theft. There's a really good YouTube guy who's like, he does self-defense videos, whatever videos of shooting and stuff and stuff like that. And he always says like, you know, you, everybody should decide for yourself what your red line is, but basically for everybody, it should be never let them take you to a second location because like nothing good ever happens at the second location. You might as well just, you know, get it done right then and there. If someone's trying to haul you off to another place. And so on those lines, because it's inherently a kidnapping, 
it, it has the threat and re- reality of a lot more than that. And if you're driving around, uh, there's just it's insanely dangerous to be ordering someone at gunpoint to drive you anywhere for any length of time uh, in terms of collisions with pedestrians, property, other, other cars. So for all that, it should be treated as among the most serious crimes, I think. Right. Thank you. I mean, this is, I've been asking people this all day. This has sort of been bothering me. And, um, I mean, I, I consider carjacking to be a very barbaric crime. And as soon as I bring this up, people immediately just sort of equate it with theft or whatever. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have a rich society. I can look past a lot of theft. This, you know, no one's going to start. They're, they're, they're conflating it with joyriding where you take it, you know, normally when the person's not in there, you hotwire the car, they leave the keys in it or, or whatever. And then, you know, sometimes a kid, sometimes a kid who's too young to drive will take it and drive it around, maybe crash into a tree and then just run away. And, and, and my guess is that the people who have a, you know, slap on the wrist or even less than that view of how you should treat carjacking, my guess is that they're really thinking more of that kind of joyriding where the owner may not even be on the scene at all. Any, any crime where you draw a weapon on somebody and, and take their property, whatever, uh, yeah, death by hanging. Okay. That's my opinion. Well, what about uh, transportation? So it used to be, you know, in <laughs> in England in the 1700s, early 1800s, uh, a lot of stuff was, you know, we'll hang you or you can go to Australia. Mm-hmm. Do we have a version of that? Is there anywhere you'd like to send to transport people to as an alternative to the ultimate punishment Detroit Metro area. That's how you get the Neo Detroit in the Robocop franchise. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, that's uh, that's going to be my survey for the next week or two. Well, we can get on the, that was the cartoon before the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Which, God, they used to be so good. What was the one before Ro- they showed before Ro- Roger Rabbit? Baby Huey, uh, where Roger's supposed to be watching him. You, you set me off because that's my favorite movie. So uh, the <laughs> uh, Roger Rabbit's supposed to be babysitting Baby Huey, and he kind of isn't paying attention. And Baby Huey starts climbing on the fridge and dropping all the knives out. And uh, it was uh, it was really that was that in and of itself was worth the price of admission right there. Yeah, yeah, I'll, uh, yeah. Okay, so today we're talking about. You pronounce it first. I tend to go with Augustine. We could do Augustine or Augustine, Augustianus. You know, we could do whatever we want, but uh, I figure we'll go with Augustine and and specifically the confessions of Augustine. And, you know, thought uh, this came out of a thought that we had in real time the last time that we did an episode together. That was on Josephus's history of the Jewish wars there we were going on a bit of a tangent about the way that Josephus describes the Essenes, which is this weird sort of esoteric sect uh, of Judaism in the first century AD is when he was writing. And I sort of made the association. I speculated because Mark asked, why does he spend so much time, Josephus spends so much time talking about this obscure little group? I had speculated, total speculation. Maybe he sort of was into that stuff when he was younger uh, maybe it was kind of something you dabble in. And then I realized that's kind of analogous to Augustine and Augustine's Confessions. You know, this thing runs, depending on your translation, a couple hundred pages, maybe 300 pages. It was written right at the beginning of the 400s AD. 
and it is essentially the first autobiography or memoir that we would recognize. Now, I want to preempt because you, especially Bog, might say, well, what about Caesar's commentaries? I, and, and I know how important that book is to you. Did this feel different to you in the sense of here you're really getting the inner psychology of a person in a way that Caesar doesn't really show you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I get a lot of the same things about it. Uh, I mean, he even, he even talks about sort of the, he even talks about having models for behavior and stuff, but, um, he's talking about that constantly. I mean, I guess it's, it's sort of the same thing, but phrased a different way. Like in terms of like I Caesar sort of behaving in a model behavior versus, uh, uh, saying, St. Augustine, I will have a very hard time not saying St. Augustine because I live in Florida, but um, I'm just going to be doing that for <laughs> it's so much easier. Uh, so when St. Augustine, uh, when he says things like, um, and I don't know how much of this is the wonderful translation skills of Rex Warner, but he's like, uh, he's talking about him commanding his elders as they're his subservience. And they were failing him as a baby, like he's a like he's a baby or a small child, and he's sort of commanding, you know, his parents and people around. Bring me more, bring me more candy, <laughs> this kind of thing. And he's like, you know, somehow I did get, you know, somehow I did survive despite that my parents' insolence towards me. The commentaries are a memoir about this very distinct period of time and like even even most of that's not personal about caesar caesar's telling you what he did caesar's telling you know, caesar's a man of action he's explaining his actions like uh the saint augustine's auto it's, it is an autobiography uh, you're you're saying it was the first autobiography and i was going to ask you about that because it was so modern in in that sense that i wonder like had anybody were there any surviving texts like this beforehand? Because I mean, at the beginning of the at the beginning of the book, he's telling you about like his oldest memory. Like I'm trying to remember when I was a baby. That's not you know that's not uh, Caesar talking about subjugating the Gauls. We have that's to, something entirely differently. Before you answer, I have to drop one of the greatest quotes of the uh, uh, regarding what does he say regarding memory is the stomach of the mind, mm. where, where good and bad things both lose their taste. <laughs> I'm sorry. It, that is that is brilliant. It, it is sort of a, at least as we have what survives, and there's always the question of the base of the iceberg of what might not have made it through the great filter, but at least of the stuff that we have or that we're pretty sure existed, it does seem to be a, a quantum leap forward in the psychology of him really wrestling with and agonizing over his own feelings, his failings, his sins, his you know, peccadilloes, his ambition, his pride, all of that. And good call on the childhood. So it starts, the very first pages are a sort of theological and philosophical meditation on what is religion? What is our concept of God? Why do we pray? Why am I... Augustine even writing this, who am I talking to? But then he segues into when I was a baby, I don't really remember it, but I look at babies now and babies kind of act like jerks. And so that makes me think I had original sin. You know, he, there's always this religious lens through it because it's important to know, maybe better to set the table a little. 
So Augustine is born in, I just looked this up, I should know, but the 350s or 360s AD. Uh, he is born in a tiny little village, uh, uh, you know, a totally obscure kind of provincial town far in from the seacoast in uh, Africa. The Romans just would have called it. I think, I think in what we would now call either uh, Algeria or Tunisia, I'm not sure exactly where his town was. He is sort of a child prodigy, it seems. He is, uh, you know, does very well in his schooling, at least as he tells it, every step of the way he's seen as a superstar, given sounds like scholarships or whatever the social equivalent was at the time, uh, and is sent to bigger and bigger towns, ends up in Carthage, which I assume would have been the provincial capital, and then gets a chance to go to the really big leagues, which is Italy, first to Rome for a hot second. He doesn't really seem to like Rome very much. And then to Milan in northern Italy, which by then is where the, the capital had moved to. Uh, all this same time, sort of two things are happening in parallel. One is he's rising up the ranks of his profession, which is he's a professor of rhetoric. And it's important to realize that, you know, rhetoric in the sense of just composing speeches and putting words together to persuade other people to do what you want was sort of the king of all disciplines and all sciences back then. It's hard to think of what the equivalent would be. Maybe we can see some glimpses in this if you look at public opinion a hundred years ago, think of Walter Lippmann or Edward Bernays. It has a little of a flavor of that, of, hey, there's this science uh, that you can kind of program other people and maybe even society at large with. So, so that's one track as he's a decorated and, and you know respected professor of rhetoric who at the age of 30 appears to be hanging with the absolute big dogs in at least the western half of the empire. That's one track that's going on. Uh, the other track is he's wrestling with and sort of going through various belief systems, to use a neutral and not really satisfying term for that. His mother is a Christian, is a baptized, converted, fully believing, fully professioned Christian, at least by the time that he's forming memories. His father really isn't. I guess his father does convert before his father dies, and his father dies before Augustine's career really gets going. But his struggles with on some level wanting to be baptized, convert, and accept Catholic or Orthodox Christianity. Those two terms haven't really split apart yet. They're more or less interchangeable concepts at this point. But for various reasons, which we'll get into, he can't quite commit. And at times he pulls back from it. At times he's kind of adjacent to it. And he cycles through a series of more esoteric and elitist cults or philosophies or other ways of looking at things, all of this comes to a head and to a crisis in his moment of conversion when he's in Milan, you know, when he's already 30 or in his early 30s. And then that sort of the climax narratively of the book, and then the second half of the book is more uh, philosophical. He talks about time. He talks about memory. And then the last part of it is a very detailed and kind of confusing allegorical reading of the book of Genesis, or at least the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. So there's a lot going on in this book. But one thing I wanted to ask you guys is, I've heard you say before that when you read Caesar, or when you either Caesar himself or Plutarch talking about Caesar, or talking about Romans in particular, 
it makes sense to you. They seem like real people. You understand how the patronage is playing into it. You get their motivations. But when you look back at classical Athens 500 years before that, or even when you look at the English Civil War or the French Revolution or whatever in the early modern period, that might seem more like space aliens to you. But for whatever reason, the Caesar and late Republic vibe and maybe early Empire vibe, you're tuned into that wavelength. So on that framework, how did this mesh up? Is this a real guy that you can picture yourself talking to now or is this a space alien? There's some difficulty there because uh, one one thing is it's clear this guy is has a ton of mental horsepower, right? So this is never going to be Joe Blow, and um, I don't think I like uh, part of the things that were bothering me was that you know I was like, man, I need like when I'm reading this, I'm thinking you know, not saying I could be as smart as him, but like if I don't spend more time away from screens, I'm never going to have a coherent thought again, because, uh, this is, this is definitely someone that's able to order their mind. And I'm very jealous of that. Hmm. They, they, they have, they're able, I mean, he seems capable of a tremendous amount of focus. I don't think, which I don't, which by the way, I don't think Caesar's Caesar is too on the move for this kind of focus. You know what I'm saying? Mm. But well, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, as for like, is he a space alien or recognizable? Not only is he not a space alien, he's so recognizable. Like you could imagine following this guy on Twitter, because he's such an archi- Like for for our age, he would be an archetypal character. He's the academic guy who's a, a little bit too inward looking. Yeah, which, which by the way, I do. We like for example. Why, One of the, why, of course I know him. He's me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, for example, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about it now, but, like, let's... Uh, one of the issues he brings up is a serious issue for, maybe perhaps not for average person, but if you're in, like, dissident politics, if you're listening to this podcast, you or someone you know has been presented with a problem that that the author brings up a lot uh, in that First off, let's just talk about it without any kind of moral condemnation and just say there is a tendency, um, which we could call this some kind of like hipster tendency or something like this. That Like uh, I remember Logo Daedalus said once on Twitter, uh, he said basically like there will not Protestantism in America is not going to work until someone creates an esoteric version because elites must will not accept anything but esoteric religion. Now you could now you could be mad at him, but however, people that are smart and go to good colleges and all these things have a huge temptation towards esoteric religion. Do they not? They they completely do. Um, I've heard you guys observe more than once that on the right, a lot of people are converting to Catholicism, uh, to Eastern Orthodox, uh, but not a lot of people seem to be converting to baptism or or even Methodism. Oh, I mean, uh, millions of people are doing that. Yes, I know what you're I saying. Really I just, as I said it, I was falling into the exact trap here. What I should say is the people who have curated public persona. Yeah, and or, 
let's, I mean, let's, what about people at the Federalist Society? I mean, that, that'd be well, a more good example. The, Sorry. The, no, no, hey, the Federalist Society's uh, yearly lawyers convention, I think, ends today in downtown D.C. Um, yeah, no, it, 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 this, this, this is a good point. And I think this goes both ways. I mean, the universities emerge out of religious instruction, at least in the Western European tradition. They're, they're, you know, you have all the way through, even through the darkest of the dark ages, you got your little Irish monks saving civilization by scribbling away, copying stuff they might not even fully understand. Then that starts to swell again as, as the worst of the worst settles down in sort of late first millennium into second millennium AD. You start to get more and more monks and more and more need for priests who can read and stuff and diplomats still mostly done through the church. But, you know, you need people who can read and write and, you know, kind of interact with people from a different world. They start talking about all sorts of things. You get philosophy, you get Peter Abelard and stuff. And then that seems to start mutating and spreading and fast forward a few hundred years into the age of reason, the age of the enlightenment, you start getting a lot of people in these settings who, yeah, I mean, they have to do theology and they have to do prayer, but that's clearly not their main thing. So think of someone like Isaac Newton, who was a confusing dude because he was, a, I guess, more of a deist. I think I don't know as much about Isaac Newton. So, you know, he was really into alchemy. So he didn't he was not recognizably a modern secular person, as we would think. But he's not hanging out in a university setting because he wants to be a good guy in the Church of England and go get a living somewhere. But the reason I say all this is that already from the get-go in a Protestant setting, especially in a populist Protestant setting for denominations or practices or kinds of Protestantism that have never really had the official sanction of the heights of political power and society and stuff like that, that already is going to set you off on the wrong foot, probably in both ways. There's probably a lot of suspicion of what's going on there uh, from from the more populist religious perspective. And then I do think that there's a, a lot of looking down the nose going on among people who, if they're gathered together in an area which is like a little paradise, and sometimes these college campuses are set up to be, you know, like Disneyland, uh, and you're told... Yes. You're the, you know, you're the smartest and you passed this test and you did this and, you know, you're great. And every class coming in probably gets the same lecture of this is the best class ever and look at all this wonderful stuff. In, in most areas, in all sorts of areas, is this, I forget who coined the phrase luxury beliefs, mm. but maybe the idea is that even in religion, there's going to be luxury or prestigious brands of religion. Uh, and then there are going to be you know, your, your, your Costco brand of religion. And, and I, and I do think that's how people see it. It's unfortunate, but I do, I do want to focus because like there is like a, a, a Protestant versus Catholic thing in that stuff. But I do want like, I mean, specifically mystic esoteric. I mean, we could see this in early, in early America. I mean, if you were elite, you had to join the Masons, which was mystic and esoteric. Right. But that had nothing to do with like, you know, like the Protestant, like the religion of the, of people it had nothing to do with that. It was a, it was a secret club. Yeah. If they want to form secret clubs, like if they need esoteric clubs or whatever. Yeah. 
I mean, I guess I don't. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they should do rather than trying to screw up religion. Uh, Newton was a, a like the perfect example. Actually, it makes me jealous. I didn't think of it first. Here's a guy who was a judge, you know, big brain genius, and like he developed his own little special theological concepts. And because you know, hey, I'm really I'm super smart. I'm the smartest guy on the planet. Surely I can figure out the universe. And you know, well. In in Saint Augustine, the book we're talking about, he grapples with this a lot. This this um, word cell, I guess not even desire, but need to be able to wrangle the again like everything in reality and explain it and quantify it and have control over it. And like I, as as the text goes on, he seems like he makes peace with not being able to do that. It's vanity. Yeah, I mean, also when you go to the church service, you see like what what this religion does. I mean, you know, like there you're there with hundreds of people. You're singing on Sunday. This is not sort of at the the goal of this is not sort of your your personal mental journey and and you figured out this fact and that fact. I don't know. I do I do want to. I think that there is something specific about it. That there's something that's universal in terms of like when we get to when humans get to a it's not in other words this isn't a universal impulse but but uh given the right conditions perhaps it is that uh in a certain condition every human sort of has a need to say um i don't listen to nickelback and creed i listen to radiohead um you know what i'm saying yeah, yeah, I was into them before they were cool. Name me five albums of theirs that that that's not just limited to music. Yeah, can this and I, it makes me wonder. Like, first off, if this is something that's predictable, I mean, I'm not sure. It seems pretty dang pretty. It seems like this happens a lot. Uh, I mean, you can the greatest, you know, uh, like look at pictures of George Washington and he's got all that crazy Mason get up and stuff. He wanted. He, he had a desire for some my, mystic esoteric stuff. You I mean you can, they have books. There are Masonic books and stuff and it's all mysticism, mm-hmm. esotericism. They like that. Now, if, and if it is, that's, that seems to be very important. If you, ha, if, if there, if any part of elite theory is true, because elites uh, obviously have a lot of power in our lives. And it, this is like, Oh, by the way, there's this thing that normal people don't really care about, but as soon as people get a bunch of power, they really get into this certain ideas. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on elite theory, Claudius? Well, and I was just thinking maybe maybe what you're describing is most prevalent when there's a shift from one status system to another or whether there's some tension. And let me explain my, what I mean by that. So contrast everything you're saying with post-Confucian classical Chinese bureaucratic and scholarly culture, because that is a ladder, and you know you got to kind of I don't know much about it, but I know enough to know that you you learn the classics and you take the tests and you cultivate the right thought and the right speech and the right gestures and the right behavior and all of that, and you're climbing up a social and political ladder by doing that. But to my knowledge, it's all out in the open. There's no secret inner hidden cult-like aspect to it. Quite the opposite. You say, hey, 
the point of all of this is ultimately funneled towards making sure that the imperial ceremonies are done right. I don't know enough about the Chinese empire to know if it was similar to the Roman empire. In the Roman empire, the, the ceremony, you know, part of being emperor, and you see this most obviously actually in the Byzantine period, you're on public display. You're like the Macy's Day Parade every day for you. And especially when they have races in the uh, uh, horse races in the Hippodrome and everything, your box is the, you know, the, the royal box is the center of the whole thing. You're always on display. So if you're connected with that cultural apparatus and that bureaucratic apparatus, you're elite, but you're not hidden. That is what I'm picturing in a time where you have a stable system of values and a stable ladder to climb up to become the elite and a relatively unified idea. People may not like it, but they acknowledge, yeah, the people who have this kind of cultural capital tend to be hanging out with the people who have the actual capital and the control of the guys with the swords and stuff. Contrast that to Washington and the founding fathers who may have had money and they may have had learning, but they were subjugated colonials who were thousands of miles away from where their cultural home base was. And it was almost impossible for them to be fully accepted. There's this legend or urban legend, Mark in particular, do you know if this is true or not, that after the Seven Years' War, Washington applied for a commission in the Imperial British Army and was rejected? I've heard that, but I have no idea if that's actually true or not. I don't know. Uh, I've heard that he wasn't well thought of after after the war because well, he kind of I mean, started the war didn't he at least in this theater uh, yeah and it, when you like when you the war begins yeah. and you end up uh, retreating and your commanding officer gets killed it, yeah it's probably not a good look I, I don't I don't know if he if he requested a if he requested a commission and was turned down it wouldn't surprise me he wasn't thought well of I know as a soldier but when you think of Ben Franklin you know Ben Franklin goes to first the British throne as the representative of the colony of Pennsylvania, kind of their agent, and then eventually to Paris. But he, you know, he does them one better because he gets by in their society by LARPing as like Natty Bumpo, right? I mean, he wears the fur hat and all this stuff. And he's a, you know, wears the plain spun clothes and plays up the whole folksy shtick. But so this is what I mean. Maybe that there's two different ways and bring that back now to Augustine, you still have, that's what's so fascinating about this time period of the middle and the late 300s, is you have like a double vision superimposed. You have all of the old classical culture and the Roman empire that's built on top of the Roman Republic in terms of the way you get ahead in terms of offices and the government or being a professor of rhetoric or whatever. You have all of that, but then kind of grafted onto that you have Christianity. And I don't know what its market share. It's very difficult to tell just what percentage of human beings alive in the Roman Empire in any given year or decade would have thought of themselves as Christian. Uh, Gibbon, I was just rereading Gibbon's chapters on the rise of Christianity to prep for this. He throws out the estimate, and you know, I don't know if we know that much more than he did about this. He has very opinionated views on this subject, but he throws out the estimate <laughs> that when Constantine, not converts exactly, but when Constantine sort of takes the boot off the neck of Christianity and kind of throws his weight behind it, he doesn't get baptized, I think, until his, his deathbed. But, you know, he is signaling, these are my guys, this is, this is the wave of the future. Gibbon throws out the estimate that at that point, which is the three teens AD, he says 5% of 
of the inhabitants of the Roman Empire would have been Christian. That sounds pretty low to me, but it's an interesting corrective. And so what I'm saying is, clearly stuff is in flux in terms of how status works, what is good or bad in culture. There's a contest going on all through the 300s about that. And maybe that's the kind of thing where these esoteric uh, aspects of it can come in. And if you apply that now, well, I mean, you have, you know, the Mormon, the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right, I guess would be one, something that maybe you could try to shoehorn into some of this as an analogy in the U.S. Republic. But to my knowledge, there was never a fad of, you know, upper class East Coast guys sort of converting to, to Mormonism. I don't think that's where they were drawing their recruits from. So I do know the phenomenon you're talking about, but it's hard to pin down. I, I definitely see it when you're talking about kind of Protestant and Baptist versus Catholic or Orthodox or, or maybe even weirder, more esoteric bespoke stuff and how that all plays out in American politics and particularly online politics. But I'm looking for a unified field theory, and I don't have one yet. When it comes to St. Augustine, more than just a transitory figure, you figure around the time he's born, uh, I guess, like Constantine's sons on the, on the throne as emperor. And, uh, you know, uh, we're not very far removed from, we're a generation removed from what Diocletian's. Yep. Yeah, Diocletian's is the very beginning of the 300s. He sort of, end of the 200s, beginning of the 300s, he writes the ship. He comes up with the plan to split everything into sort of sub-emperors, although that actually doesn't last very long, but that does seem to kind of calm things down after the crisis of the third century. And so that would be only, yeah, uh, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, where Constantine beats his last rival, is I think 312. And if I'm right about that, that means that when Augustine is coming into his oats and going to Italy uh, would have been, that would have been about 70 years in the past. So that would be like World War II for us now, or maybe a little, mm -hmm. maybe a little more recent. Yeah, when he when like when he's born, Constantine's son's still on the throne. So it's not like this was a this was necessarily a done deal. In fact, the next emperor famously tries to put the genie back in the bottle and change the Roman Empire back to, I guess, Hellenistic, whatever you want to call it, their religion. He tries he tries to tries to roll it back and and in the Christ, in Christianity's dominance over the Roman Empire, which obviously fails. And then by the end of his life. As you said, the barbarians are at the gate. Rome has been sacked. The Western Empire has another, what, 10 or 20 years left before it officially gets BTFO'd. So he's a figure, he's a transitory figure. As for the American pol the politics stuff, so much of that is rolled into what, like, for, elite theory is my favorite example of this. Like, you guys ever seen Napoleon Dynamite? Oh, yeah. Fogby, have you ever seen it? Yeah. All right, you know Uncle Rico? And, yes. and, and he's the guy that's... Yeah. He, he he's, the the about, he's the best thing about that movie. Right, he's like, you know, if the if the coach would have put me in, we'd have won state, and everything would have been different. Like, whenever someone talks about elite theory, that's what they're saying. They're like, hey, you know, if, if you put me in charge of everything, things would go so much better. And while that may be true, who cares? And so much of these... <laughs> denominational conflict on so much of this de denom denominational conflict on Twitter is just people competing to, to announce themselves as, as elite competing for status. And on, on Twitter and those circles, it's low status to be 
Protestant, or at least white Protestant. So they are going to retreat away from that into other in, uh, different denominations. But if you look at like the numbers of people, well, if you're in Africa, South uh, South America, or in the United States in general, there's a movement towards Protestant do- denominations. Well, and it's funny because when we say Protestant all through this conversation, we we have not been talking about the sort of high church mainline denominations. <laughs> no, when that's and and you know. Uh, yeah. And then where, where does that fit into all of this? You know, well, that's, the, fu- that's the, funny too. When you talk to we, anyone who call, cause like, honestly, I never even heard of, I'm Southern Baptist. I never even heard of like, I didn't learn what evangelical was until, um, until, uh, George Bush junior W came on. We were just Southern Baptist. Then yeah. And by the way, like, I was like, oh, we're evangelical. Okay. And then, and then the, you know, Protestant, if you meet someone on Twitter because it's so elite, then you're going you're gonna to be talking to a high church Anglican. However, like, I, I get, let, let me, let's look at it like this. So I've joined a secret society before. I'm not in one now. This was in college. I joined a fraternity. <laughs> and uh, I could, like, and so I spent basically all my. I was going to guess Bilderberg group, but okay. <laughs> I spent basically all my time in college with these people. We probably spent maybe two hours max of the entire thing on what you would on like ceremonies and ritual and stuff like that. It essentially didn't exist. You guys say the Greek alphabet backwards or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you memorize like a, um, you know, a page from the book or whatever, but uh, you got this brotherhood or whatever, which mm-hmm. was, that was, that was the big thing. Now, if you was to, that's why I'm starting to think maybe either this doesn't have any interaction with the, 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 the actual like religions of the people and perhaps it should maybe, but however, like listen, I mean, if you're an FBI agent and you want to find people that are listening to this podcast, <laughs> just go to any major city and go to the Latin mass. <laughs> oh man. The Latin mass has enough uh, PR problems as it is right now. You, uh, yeah, you can probably. I'm. 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 Look, I'm not. I'm not. Everyone knows this. I mean, this is just a. Uh, now, why? Why would that be? Well, I mean, you laid out a good example there. So, like before the Christians take over, or before George Washington, uh, before 1776, this what we'll say secret religion, esoteric religion, is able to give these people a a brotherhood that is not accessible to uh the current ruling authorities perhaps i mean would we yep sure you know what i'm saying and this so like or like uh you know hitler is meeting in the beer hall at night in Mm. in 30 in 36 and they already have like a uh they have already have planned out like when we, who, by the way, also has a ton of this, like, I don't think Hitler was into esoteric, but obviously Himmler was, that was his middle name. Uh, but they had, they had already planned out, like when we take over, you know, uh, this guy over here will be the ruler of Bavaria, all this kind of stuff. But in other words, they were able to have this sort of secret brotherhood almost with like a, with like political connotations underground by by having 
And so I don't know what I'm saying. Like, like what could use this could be? I don't know. I mean, like almost specifically, we if we want to do things politically, we need to give uh, our, uh, but you know, we need to have set up a McDonald's play place for um, the Buffalo Club. You know what I'm saying? Here's the thing about the with the comment that started us all. Like something esoteric and secretive are not necessarily the same thing. You know, like, like so early Christianity was practiced in secret uh, in most places for good reason because you could be killed if people found out you're a Christian. But it wasn't necessarily an esoteric religion. There were examples of esoteric religions at the same period of time, and they were very popular with the elites. They were mystery religions, and there were a billion different variations of them. And uh, I don't know if any anything about how their rights worked have survived into into the modern era. But basically, they uh, you, you've seen the movie. Um, oh shoot! What's the? I'm going to do the bog beef thing. What was? the last movie that Kubrick did eyes wide shut. Yeah. But the yeah, girl with so the like, goat masks. Yes. You could, Im- like that, like, I'm not saying that's how uh, mystery religions work, but that is kind of the basic gist of it. You have a bunch of weird people doing weird stuff and there's it's very, a lot of symbolic meanings and you don't necessarily understand what they are. Would you agree with that, Claudius? And I know that's massively oversimplifying it. it. it yeah. I mean, yes, there, there are two, Two contexts of a mystery cult that I'm aware of in the ancient world. One of them fits what you're saying very well. The other one, not so much. Uh, the one that doesn't fit as well, at least originally, is the mysteries at Eleusis. Eleusis mm-hmm. is a town that's sort of halfway in between Athens and its nearest big-ish rival, Megara. So on the southwest coast of the Attic Peninsula. And there are the mysteries at Eleusis, which is a big deal. And... You know, these are. I, I, I'm I, only getting, know, I know nothing about that except from what I read in the book Julian. Julian which is and so picture. Julian by Gore Vidal, uh, which I think we both agree is maybe not his best book, but is an interesting book because it's it's mm-hmm. about the Emperor Julian, the last pagan emperor you alluded to earlier, uh, and he, interesting figure and a real historical figure. Some writings by him and a lot of writings about and against him survive. He was raised as a member of the Constantinian dynasty as a Christian, mm-hmm. but he also kind of had access to the other side, to the pagan or the classical side. And it turns out he turned out to be a really good general. And in a time, you know, they haven't really fixed all the bugs from the crisis of the third century, because if you start winning a bunch of battles with your army out on the German frontier, guess what? Those legions <laughs> might decide, actually, you're the better emperor, not the punk back in Rome or Milan or wherever it was by then. When he has the freedom to, you know, be his true self and speak his truth, he says, my truth is that I am a pagan Roman. <laughs> and uh, that sort of freaks out the emerging Christian political establishment. They don't like that very much. The the Julian describes him going through the Eleusinian mysteries, and it all seems to research this pretty carefully. Long story short, the Eleusinian mysteries hinge around the story of Persephone. And, you know, Hades comes and takes Demeter's daughter Persephone, kidnaps her, I mean, he rapes her in the literal etymological sense, and he drags her down into the underworld. She eats some, uh, 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 she eventually, uh, he probably sends Hermes to go get her, Zeus does, and she's led back up, but she ate a few pomegranate seeds. And so for each of the seeds she eats, she needs to spend one month under the ground. This is an explanation of why we have seasons. 
Demeter's the goddess of uh, fertility mm-hmm. and, and, and agricultural fertility, specifically in the harvest. Her, because she's in mourning for her daughter when her daughter's underground, this is why we have winter. This is why we have seasons. And so in the Eleusinian mysteries, it's like a big party. I mean, not a party in a drunken bacchanal sense that'd be Dionysus, but like Easter or like the Hajj for Muslims, you have to speak Greek. The condition is you have to not be a barbarian, meaning you have to speak Greek and be (laughs) enough cultured of Greek culture that they recognize you as one of them. But as far as I know, that's the only requirement. Now, there are elements of this that are going to sound kind of familiar to creedal, to, I shouldn't say creedal Christians, because that's about the content of the ideas, to the ritual and liturgy of Christianity, particularly uh, where the, the communion is very ritualized, so in the Catholic Church or in what I understand of the Orthodox Church, because the, the core secret of the mysteries, everybody takes a piglet and you wash your piglet in the ocean, and then you probably sacrifice and maybe eat your piglet, but then at some point at night, they kind of bring you into this cave, and they light all their torches, and the core secret, which you're not supposed to tell anybody, it's supposed to be punishable either by other initiates to the mysteries, which is a lot of people. This isn't a tiny cult. Uh, uh, but the core secret appears to be they hold up an ear of grain at one point. And, and this is, you know, that the cycle, in other words, the secret that's being revealed in these mysteries is just like there's an agricultural cycle of winter and then spring of crops dying, but then their bodies fertilizing the new crops. Similarly to you have an immortal soul, you are in some way in connection with the divine, there will be something after this, you will come back in some sense. Stuff like that seems to merge with and evolve with the Passover and the Last Supper, and then that seems to be where we get a lot of the ritual of mass. So that's the aspect of a mystery cult, which at least in classical Athens is a little broader. Now fast forward almost a thousand years to Julian, that might have been more LARPing in more of an elite mm-hmm. way because there does seem to be a period of disbelief among the elites and almost materialism. We talk about atoms and stuff like that. And then very interesting in the 300, in the 200s and 300s AD, as Christianity does start to catch on and as the pagan elite start worrying about that, it's almost like they do, Bog, you talk about the um, invention of right-wing, you know, Bushido, or whatever by the Japanese. Shinto, yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's a similar thing going on among cultural elites in at least the Western Roman Empire. They're looking at Christianity being like, I can see why this stuff is catching on because they have a they have a worldview, it all makes sense, they have a ritual, and so they kind of retcon and LARPingly reconstruct a pagan church, which never really existed. It was more of an organic thing back in the day. And they're self-consciously piecing it together. Julian is all about that, but he gets assassinated a couple of years into his reign. So that's the kind of mystery cult with, with that one caveat that when it comes back, it might be elite LARPing, at least in its original form. I don't think it maps onto what we're talking about, about the esoteric or elite or secret society. But the other kind that does, and this is going to tie into the glove cycle and empire stuff, when Cult Rome, of Mithras. Sorry? Cult of Mithras. Um, yeah. the, the earlier the Isis comes in because as Rome expands its empire, and we've talked about this from the first episode we did, Rome has an assimilation model of, yeah, okay, we, we've invaded this new area and we're pacifying them and they've got all these weird gods, but, eh, you know, if you squint, this is kind of like Zeus or whatever. And, yeah, you can bring and you can even set up a temple of that in Rome 
because it's not mutually exclusive. It's plug and play. And they were happy to add more festivals to their calendar to kind of bread and circuses, keep keep people happy, keep people fed and, and drunk and not, you know, rising up. But people also in their homes, we see this in Pompeii, there's a Dionysiac mysteries with frescoes that just murals that just happen to be preserved by the volcanic eruption. Uh, there's the House of the Mysteries or the Villa of the Mysteries is one of the main tourist attractions uh, in Pompeii. And it's been a long time since I've seen these murals, but if I remember what they look like, there appears to be, the murals appear to be depicting what the rituals of the cult would have been. Uh, they get you drunk or maybe even high on some kind of drug or fungus or whatever, and then they might whip you a little, and then they show you an object. They kind of special lighting on it, and they show you an object, and it's supposed to be this mind-blowing experience. Those probably did have, you know, there's an imperial aspect to this as the core Roman culture, maybe get or more Roman people maybe get consumed up. They start bringing in all these other people from the periphery of the empire, and they bring their ideas a lot of those people who make it to Rome and who are bawling and making social connections and cultural connections in Rome, uh, they're probably pretty rich, a lot of them. And so they might build a big grounds in, in Rome or outside Rome or in the Bay of Naples or whatever. And they might set up a little temple and a little cult to remind them of how it was done in the old country. Well, in the old country, that might have been an organic thing that all levels of society could participate in to one extent or another. But if you transplant it 1,500 miles over to Rome, it might be a very different vibe of more of an elitist uh, sort sort of thing. And, and and so I think in that sense, the mystery cult does definitely apply. Let, let me, let me, well, first of all, let me take the credibility that you just built up for us, uh, like intellectual conversation and exploit it and say, uh, yeah, exactly. I agree completely. But, but seriously, uh, you're, you're, I think this is the key distinction, and this is just my opinion. There's nothing backing this up other than my own thoughts. Is that you? There were these strange cults that developed, and they became maybe popular among the elite towards the end of the Roman Empire. Then there was the other option that you had at the time, and that was the direction that Saint Augustine took. And what like. When esoteric can have a lot of meanings, one's like just secretive, but the and but the other one, like I think the primary one, when I think of esoteric, I think this is intentionally obfuscated. I want this to be something that only a few people can understand. This is the exact opposite of Christianity in the I guess this is this is the Great Church period or Nikian, whatever. This is this is before before the schism before Chalcedon. Uh, the, what, like your church today is called the Catholic Church, the Universal Church. This is the specifically sorry, specifically outlaw secret society. Yeah, Catholics and Catholics and Masons do not not uh, not big fans of each other. Y- yeah, <laughs> to say the least. Of course, they but, ended they ended up with their own semi secret society, the Jesuits, and you know again a lot of tension between the mainstream <laughs> church. Uh, I I am Catholic. I will note that the Holy Father is the the the, the current Pope is the first Jesuit Pope. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, I feel that the doctrines of the church at that time and today are the opposite of esoteric. Now, there are there will be arguments between Protestants and Catholics about about this later on, about, you know, how should should, should we have things in vernacular language, who should have access to, to read the books, whatever. But at the, t- at the time period that we're talking about, it wasn't that way. This was This was meant to be expansive. It was meant to be literally universalist it was for something for everybody and the man himself was like that saint augustine is uh highly regarded 
amongst the Catholics and amongst the Protestants. I don't know about the Orthodox. Probably, maybe. I don't. I don't know. But that's not necessarily a thing that happens with every religious figure of the Middle Ages and later on. You know, that that's kind of a rare deal that that he's claimed by both of these two sects of people who don't agree on a lot of things. And, and he, you know, you're exactly right about that. And he's sort of in the sweet spot. I mean, some of it is about his own unique characteristics. He's clearly kind of off the charts word cell. Uh, and, and I, you know, <laughs> but I shouldn't say that in a mean way. Cause you know, he's able, you know, he's he got wrote, horsepower. He's got horsepower. And yeah. he's also a rhetoric. Remember he was a professor of rhetoric and there's sort of a couple sides to rhetoric. I think there are three, they had theorized this into three branches or three modes of rhetoric. And I'm going to get this wrong, but uh, one of them is um, praise. So praising, you know, the emperor, praising a, a magistrate, praising a general, whatever. And that's just kind of talking about something. And you can do that also to describe uh, uh, a, a, uh, beautiful painting, a beautiful statue, whatever. That's, 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 that's the praise function. A lot uh, of no, suckling breath going on in this. In this, this yeah, well, it's, it's, it's funny you say that because, um, <laughs> he's very fixated. He's, he's, he shares maybe some of your, uh, Augusta may have been a breast milk enjoyer. The, the very first analogy he uses to describe original sin is I'm looking at these babies trying to reconstruct what I was like when I was a baby. And I've seen, you know, it must be a, a wet nurse, right? I've seen a baby who has already drunk its fill. It is perfectly satisfied. Push the other baby away and not let the other baby get its turn at the breast out of just sheer spite. That has to be original sin. What else it could be? But yeah, it is interesting that he he does keep going back to that. And that's all over uh, a, a little bird who knows this stuff way, way better than me, uh, to whom I happen to be married. Uh, tells me that that is all through Augustine, not just in the confessions, but but nursing imagery uh, is is he was really into that. So, so maybe it's you know put him on the couch. Well, there milk respecter. There is a theory going around, and I can't remember if this is a um, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't want to. I I could I could say a name attached to this, but I'm not sure if it's right. And it's people that's pretty popular, so I don't want to get. Uh, but I mean, there is uh, there's some pretty popular people on the, they have, uh, there's like a theory going around that, um, if that's your sort of fixation of, uh, and you could listen to, I think Joe Rogan has defended that like, um, uh, every, every man ha can be put to the question. Do you like breast or buttocks or whatever? Um, and they have to be able to defend one. So this is, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I'm being gross. I, this has been announced on, on, on Joe Rogan or whatever. Um, but, uh, if you, uh, defend the breast then you are clearly like that can be taken as a clear sign. You're going to go down the road of right wing, uh, uh, politics, um, that that is a clear sign of right wing politics. And like, like, even if you say, well, well no, I'm a communist or whatever, like, yeah, give it a couple of years, you know, you, 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 haven't, you, you haven't come to your nature, but anyways, before I leave this, I want to, to, to try to laser in on what can, what can we know about this esoteric stuff? Because it, um, I, I do wonder if there, because he's one of the only people that sort of gets into this from the perspective of like the exact right kind of person. So, but maybe, which by the way, both you guys need to watch Evangelion, uh, <laughs> Evangelion like has, uh, basically the bad guys in it are mystery religion like Ooh. like mystery religion inspired which is it's it's really cool but anyways 
Um, and it's, I, it's I will like, tell you, Mark, Mark, every time anything anime or manga or whatever comes up, you, you <laughs> seem pretty skeptical. I, I will say uh, I got deep into the One Piece. I'm about two thirds of the way through the run of the comic. And if the rest of the Japanese manga anime world is anything like this, uh, I'm all about it now. It is it is, <laughs> it is blowing my mind. So don't don't knock it till you tried it uh, on, on the esoteric. So he, there are two phases, at least two distinct phases that Augustine describes of his own intellectual and religious or, or spiritual activities before he converts to, you know, plain vanilla basic bitch Christianity. Uh, and the first one of these, in terms of his evolution, he seems to get into it when he's a teenager and a student, is Manichaeanism. And when we say Manichaean, we basically use it to just mean a black and white worldview. Mm -hmm. You're either with us or against us. Funnily, side note, I had totally forgotten this. I always forget this until I come across this line, but I've been going through the Gospels again. And at one point, Jesus says exactly the opposite. The disciples come and say, hey, there's some weird guy out there who's also casting out demons, but he won't roll with us. What should we do? And Jesus says, let him do his thing. If someone is not against you, then they're for you. Which is a which is you know sort of flips the esoteric thing on its head, and I kind of like that. A thousand flowers bloom, or whatever. I guess I really am a lib and a pluralist at heart. But <laughs> but 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 Manichaeanism uh, is there's a guy called Mani or Mani, and I don't know enough about him, but he is a Persian, and he's living in the 200s A.D. So according to Wikipedia, he dies in 274 or 277 A.D. So he's dying more than, you know, he's dying 90 years or 80 years before Augustine is born. And he has, you know, by the time fast forward uh, to Augustine's youth, this has caught on, you know, he's doing it originally in the Persian cultural sphere, but it's caught on like wildfire uh, all the way to the other end of the, of the, you know, Middle Eastern and European world to North Africa. And Augustine's descriptions of this, I don't know. I'll try real hard not to badmouth any particular religion that actually exists today that still has adherence. So I don't want to pick on any particular example. You, you guys are free to, and I'll and I'll join in if you do. But it sounds like he, here's what we can tell both from you know googling around and then Augustine's descriptions of it. It is esoteric in the sense that um, this is not for everybody. And they're not even like aggressively going around handing out pamphlets or singing songs on street corner Salvation Army style. You got to kind of know who to ask to get into it. They'll tap you like a fraternity. So right away, I think that's that's one sign. There are two levels of believers. There's the regular Manichaean, and that's all Augustine ever was. I think he calls them the hearers. They just sit around listening to the other people. And then you have the pure ones or the elect who are sort of the inner core it is radically dualist. So it believes that there is a good God and a bad God. And this part is crucial for Augustine all through the confessions. This next part, these gods physically exist in the universe. They're somewhere out in the sky or under the earth or whatever. There's a big monster that is the evil God or that is the good God. That's my understanding of it. And um, evil has a real physical presence in the world history and religion and culture and society and whatever you want to call you know any fill in the noun is a struggle between these good and bad principles and 
It even comes down to the food we eat. There are little almost crystals or sparks of good and bad that are scattered everywhere. They're in the soil. They're in the food we eat. And if you can filter for and look for the good food and eat only the good food, that's your leg up to get into that inner esoteric group of the religion that are the elect. So, you know, that sounds like a lot of that's resonant with a lot of stuff, not necessarily stuff <laughs> we think of as religious, but with a lot of stuff going on uh, online and in real life today. It's so it's so great because he he explains in the book and it was a bit hard to follow because like this is the, the funny thing about his his about the entire book. It's extremely accessible. It's way more accessible than I thought it would be. I understood what he was going for. It's an autobiography. It's the, I guess it's the, it's the model of that, but he's writing for an audience that is really foreign to us. And I don't mean in the sense that they're ancient, but that he's writing to people who are at this, there's this crossroads in time where, you know, the old order is, is obviously, if not on the way out when he writes this, it's going to be really soon. So you have all these people who are like, we need we need something new. And, you know, you have the, the Manichaeans, you had all kinds of weird cults and different groups. But he's, like, trying to explain to people, here's why you should pick my team instead of, like, them or the Neoplatonists or whatever. So, like, he goes into depth about, about these Manichaeans. Like, they have this idea that if you – it's – they don't eat meat, but it's also sinful to harvest grain because you're killing the grain to do that. But it's okay for someone else to harvest it and bring it to you, and you eat it because the act of eating it is okay. It's it's you don't have any moral culpability for the act of cutting it. Now I don't know if this is accurate because like obviously he's the person who doesn't like the Manichaeans anymore. But he, the killer line in there about them is he's talking. He says like that according to their theology. It would be sinful to give a starving man, uh, you know, cut grain for a starving man to feed him because you'd be giving the death sentence to the grain. And, he's, and the killer line is that they care more about the fruits of the earth than the men whom the, uh, the fruits were created for. Oof. The, the, the first thing that must strike any outside observer is that socialism in its developed form is a theory confined entirely to the middle classes. The typical socialist is not, as tremulous old ladies imagine, a ferocious-looking working man with greasy overalls and a raucous voice. He is either a youthful snob Bolshevik who in five years' time will quite probably have made a wealthy marriage and been converted to Roman Catholicism, (laughs) or, still more typically, a prim little man with a white-collar job, usually a secret teetotaler, and often with vegetarian leanings, with a history of nonconformity behind him, and, above all, with a social position which he has no intention of forfeiting, dot, dot, dot. The point is that to this ordinary guy he was interacting with, a crank meant a socialist and a socialist meant a crank. Any socialist he probably felt could be counted on to have something eccentric about him, And some such notion seems to exist even among socialists themselves. For instance, I have here a prospectus from another summer school, which states its terms per week and then asks me to say, quote, whether my diet is ordinary or vegetarian, end quote. They take it for granted, you see, that it is necessary to ask this question. This kind of thing is by itself sufficient to alienate plenty of decent people. 
and their instinct is perfectly sound, for the food crank is, by definition, a person willing to cut himself off from human society in hopes of adding five years on to the life of his carcass. That is, a person out of touch with common humanity. So that's or well, another great example yeah, of a disaffected, <laughs> a disaffected, it's, it's a, a disaffected or- Manichaean. <laughs> George Orwell from the Road to Wigan Pier, nineteen thirty-seven, and this is the classic. Uh, there's another rant from that book that I can't find online, where he, you know, it might be from a different book where he's even meaner and he says, you know, he describes the socialists physically in a way that's very unflattering to them. <laughs> um, but this food crankery. You're, exa- you're, you're cutting yourself off from what everybody else does. Oh, that food is for the regular people, you know, the, the, the beasts, right? And then we know the true food. We know the true doctrine. I was, uh, I was, we were talking about this in reference to the 60s. A lot of the, the children in the 60s were the red diaper babies, I think. Uh, anyways, I watched an interview with one of them. And they were asking them about what's, what's the deal with the parties? Why are you guys so into having fun? And one of them was like, yeah, my parents were were communists. These were the most mis- miserable people you've ever met, <laughs> all of them. But uh, sorry, I just want to leave this here to return to it later because this is one of those, those those sort of thoughts that I keep coming back to. So, uh, if we wanted to try to like cut away something that we could hold on to regarding the discussion about esoteric or secret brotherhood, etc., et uh, you could find things like. Um, uh, so first off, I think we could say that. Uh, esoteric really i will what would be another what would be secret religion and that's not exactly the right word but sort of secret brotherhood religion secret club or hipster hipster club religion okay that uh number one it's a it's a very male thing i think uh this and i'll give two examples later it seems to be very male uh like i know people at the highest end of elite society and what they've told me is that, like, so the public religion for women in these societies is like progressivism. That's their public religion. And, but privately, they have the most proletarian, even naive, even, um, uh, like TikTok, even, um, what's the astrology religion that that is the real <laughs> that that is the real secret religion of 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 elite women which does not track onto this stuff at all uh it seems to be very male now two examples so first off we had the examples we talked about earlier the the mystery religions were of course famously something that spread through the i guess you'd say the nco ranks of the legion yes mm-hmm. 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 Mithras definitely. Yeah, Mithra, yeah, Mithraism was really popular amongst the legions. Now we have two examples of that today. So we have Gulenism in Turkey, <laughs> which is a it's a mystery religion, and it spread through the uh, Turkey has a very large military compared to the size of the state in the modern world. So they have kind of like a legion, and what I'm told is the officers have a the secret religion of Gulenism. Blah blah blah. And the other example would be, of course, there's a, there's a one of Reza Eslan's favorite books. Uh, it's called With God on Our Side, which talks about if people want to know, like uh, most dissident right people are, are so I, I don't like the U.S. military in a lot of ways. However, you will find I I bite my lip. I can't ever really just like condemn the U.S. military the way other people can. 
Well, there's there's a book. You don't have to read it. You could read a summary. It's not untrue. There's a book called With God on Our Side, uh, the the evangelical coup of America's military. So yeah, that's that's the only reason why the military was worth a shit after Vietnam and why it soon will no longer be worth a shit. By the way, there in it's not esoteric at all, but there is a secret brotherhood at and they specifically, of course, the Air Force Academy is like the capital of this there is a secret brotherhood of evangelical zealots that goes on with these men at this military level that really sort of uh i don't know that, that we, we there does seem to be something there in terms of like uh outlawed brotherhood that this is some way of doing that you agree on that it doesn't have to be esoteric Clearly, I, my last final words on this. Yeah, there's a difference in, in, in the intent would be like you could say is the intent. Would you if you had your druthers, uh, if you're performing your religion in secret, would you rather that everybody on the planet be acquainted with your religion and understand how it works? Would you like them all to be part of it or would you prefer them not to be? Is, is, is there some value in them not being uh, part of the elect? And I think that's a clear dividing line between. Not only religions, like you know, sex within religions, but I think that's that's how you could what I would characterize between esoteric and simply practiced in secret because somebody will send you to the Coliseum to get eaten by a lion if you get caught doing it. Right, but like if you are the um, who's the supreme maximal leader of Iran <laughs> of what or of what? Sorry, he's our friend. He's been on our show. Oh, Hayward. Uh, Hayward. Hayward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if you're someone like that, well, you, meant, of, you meant 10 years from now, not <laughs> spoiler alert, please. Oh, sorry. Well, on on, well, sir, if you're listening to this on your path to creating, are you, are utopian become the Supreme Maximum leader? You will need some kind of, uh, you know, Buffalo club going on there for the guys to do and it clearly doesn't have to be esoteric the 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 once in future supreme leader is haywood not hayworth i apologize yeah, so, uh, yes charles hay charles haywood so uh, anyways okay let's let's set that aside continue well before, yeah, let me, but before, sorry, go ahead. before we set aside the, oh, the yeah, anything you well, guys have on that i'm done on that go ahead claudia okay i was just gonna say there's an ambivalence here in the way i hear you talking about it because I've heard you in previous episodes say, in terms of political getting something going, drinking club is where it starts. Just hang out, have a few beers, see what happens, that there's a lot of power to that. Um, and that can be done in a, let's say, disruptive way. But you also have the skull and bones aspect of that, which is the secret society. I mean, they're, everybody knows it exists, if, uh, but, you, you know created the CIA, allegedly has all these weird things. But the weirdest was when both W. Bush and John Kerry had both been in this weird <laughs> secret frat. I think overlapped, right? I think Kerry was a few years older than Bush, but I think they would have been in it at the same time. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of weird implications there if you believe some of the stories about what they get up to. Um, and it, I, I don't know why I'm free associating here, but I think of the, the Hellfire Club I don't know exactly what period in London this was, but that there were upper class rowdies would just get drunk and go out and just beat, you know, people who weren't upper class. And there was nothing you could really do about it. And uh, do you know where we got the tune to our national anthem from? Anacreon from heaven. Yeah, right? it's a it's a British drinking song, you know, mm -hmm. and it's it's uh, according to Wiki, the official song of the Anacreontic Society. 
an 18th century gentleman's club of amateur musicians in London. So, you know, get back to what we were talking about, about, um, you know, Washington or Franklin being a little culturally envious of what's going on on the other side of the ocean. Well, our guys just started importing it wholesale. Oh God. I have to Merrick. Here's one. Um, the, the day we come out of reconstruction <laughs> happens much later without very esoteric religion. <laughs> Let's keep moving. Okay. Keep so keep going on. <laughs> let me reel it in. Let you, me reel it. How dare you? Let me reel it. How back. dare you? You, you, know you got to modify the theory. Yeah. <laughs> the first rule of fight club is you don't talk about fight club. All right. Separates his whites. From the, yeah. <laughs> oh, you doing laundry now, buddy? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, how dare you? <laughs> Extra bleach in them sheets. Okay. As a as a Yankee as a Yankee outsider, I'm going to plead confusion and ignorance about what just happened. We all had to uh, know nothing. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The wide the wide awakes too. You had the mass torchlight parades in the uh, 1860 election season. <laughs> It was. It was. There was something in the air. There. Uh, that's a. That's a hard checkmate, by the way. <laughs> yeah, because walk uh, it back, buddy. Let me, okay, let's. Well, bring let it me, back. Uh, bring it back to Augustine, because where is where is he in this, at night? In this in this model, where is this, where is Augustine in this model? Most importantly, I mean. So most importantly, just for I mean, he talked about this very clear and intelligent way, which gave us the opportunity to talk about it going on right now, which is, I mean, of course, uh, you know, his thoughts on just war and all these kinds of things. This is these, this is, uh, it is incredible what it like, I don't, you don't get, you have to sort of like, there's another step that's involved when you do this with Caesar. Whereas like, um, I don't know, the way August, the way Augustine writes, I mean, he kind of presents this stuff. You don't, you could just go right into talking about these kinds of awesome, uh, uh, really pertinent subjects that are seem everlasting. Because he's 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 in the perfect sweet spot where he's inherited all this legacy of classical culture, and he climbs to the very top of it. Again, I know I sound like a broken record, but being a or the professor of rhetoric in Rome and Milan and all that, that's. Number you know, one, I'm, try- I'm trying to think of what an equivalent would be in our fragmented culture now, and you just can't think of one. It's what being was, like a what was Hegel's job? Hegel, uh, he, he had like a chair at whatever university of you know just thought or Foucault. Foucault came up with his own title, and he called himself a the professor of the history of the systems of thought, which I thought was pretty <laughs> pretty baller. Um, something like that. Hegel's. Level. I remember Hegel's job was seen as the same thing. Like you are the the, guy, the number one brain man of Europe. But he also is orthodox. You know, get small o. You know, he's mainstream Christian enough that his writings never get condemned. Quite the contrary, he's a saint. He's a doctor. He's a father of the church. All this stuff. So he's in that sweet spot where he's able to do it both. Uh, I've heard it said that we have more just shelf space by Augustine than by anybody else in the ancient world. And I can't swear to that. That was that Ryan Reeves, big shout out by him to the way I did that whole medieval playlist over the last couple of weeks. 
Uh, Bob turned me on to R-Y-A-N, last name Reeves, R-E-E-V-E-S. His YouTube channel is Straight Fire. Uh, recommend it to anybody, whether this stuff is all brand new to you or whether it's a refresher. He does these half-hour episodes that are just amazingly well explained. But he was the one I heard assert that we have more just dead trees taking up space from Augustine than anybody else in the ancient world. And I would believe it because we're just confessions or even city of God, which I did not read for this and which is like 2000 pages long. That's just scratching the surface. We have his letters, all these other treatises he wrote about both secular, but especially theological subjects, uh, sermons he gave once he became a priest, all that stuff. So he has all of that. There are some, you'll notice in his thought, that every once in a while he says something where you're like, oh, it's kind of hard to square with the creed. But, you know, there's a little stuff where someone who was of less importance might have got condemned, but he was just so undeniable that kind of everybody just ran with it. And you're right. I think both Protestants and Catholics might look back and say, wherever the later splits developed, this is a guy who knows what's up. Uh, and and I don't know about the Greek. You should have uh, James Poulos on the show. Ask him about the, the Orthodox side of things. What? My favorite thing on Ryan Rees is he's like, um, he had the day off from college. He's going to college in Rome. And one of his roommate, one of his buddies from college calls him and says, Hey, you need to get here right now. We're going to take a bus. We're going to be, we can stand on stage like 15 feet away from the first time the Pope says the filioque since like, you know, uh, 1054 mm. <laughs> whatever. That was, a, I don't know. That's kind of incredible. It, it's, uh, I don't know, it makes you feel ridiculous. When you hear those stories in America, it's like, you're going to stay in the same place where Jimi Hendrix, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, ate a sandwich or something. But uh, uh, yeah, you know what I mean? That that was cool. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say uh, some of the things that he, I don't, I don't know. But first of all, let me cover my butt and say, I'm not a theologist. And I'm not well educated in these things either. I'm not Claudius. My perspective was that Okay, he. Why does writing survive? Well, they're good, but that's probably not enough. Like for example, he he references in his in his book one of the works of Cicero that's been lost to history. I, I everybody Constantine loved this uh, loved this. I think it was like a treatise on philosophy or something. Augustine loved it. Uh, Constantine loved it. It's obvious that people thought this is a really important work that was, it would should survive the hit like you know the tests of time, but it didn't. But why? Why did his? Is because he was so much later in time, or whatever? Well, maybe, or maybe because, like I said before, this man had a little something for everybody. Specifically, he said things that rode the line, but he kind of had to because of his moment in history. And perhaps this is—I don't know. I guess some people might view this as like sacrilegious or whatever. But part of this was his the fights that were happening politically in Africa at the time, in North Africa, uh, between the Donatists, right? Yeah, and he was on the front lines of this, this fight. Uh, we've talked about them briefly before. They were people who believed that everybody who cucked to the Diocletian was it? What's the what's the official term for the oppression? It was the, perse uh, the persecutions or the yeah persecutions of Di yeah the the various persecutions. Anybody who cucked to that and renounced Christianity was not was basically should be excommunicated. And I think you brought this up when we last time we talked about it, which never 
because I'm so Protestant, never crossed my mind. But like, this wasn't just a thing where you were saying, "Oh, you have a bad reputation now." This could affect who would be pope. This affect who was actually a bishop. Which people, who people like were in the clergy who shouldn't be in the clergy because they should be excommunicated for betraying our Lord and Savior to to the like the emperor, the pagan emperor. Yes, that's exactly right. So you you know uh, Augustine again is born around three fifty or so. In the prior generations, uh, the persecutions really heat up in the mid-200s when the crisis of the third century is at its apex, and it seems like the Christians are kind of a convenient – well, we'll get into this later as to whether there's a convenient scapegoat or whether we should steal man given for, for some of this stuff, but, but we'll, we'll get to that later. The, the persecutions really get going in a broad way where they're really trying to wipe out Christianity in the mid-200s. Diocletian in the late 200s. In the province in North Africa in particular, you have Donatus. I don't know much about him, but he was a specific guy, and he was also the figurehead or the, or the inspirer of this movement, which is sort of, you know, the hardliners. The, the lost causers, sort of, except their cause ends up winning. This is what's so paradoxical. But their theory is that if you bent the knee and sacrificed to the emperor and handed over the Bibles, and especially if you name names and, you know, sort of turned other people in who were hiding out, you're done. Maybe if you come on hands and knees begging and genuinely repenting, maybe we, the hardcore purists, will let you back in. But that is not a done deal. That is far from guaranteed. We're going to make it painful. Well, fast forward to Constantine, post-Constantine, you have this kind of, we talked about this, I think, last time or two times ago, this period of official sort of neutrality, the imperial family is giving more and more support to the Christians, but in theory, there's a little bit of a level playing field. Uh, a lot of the people that are saying, hey, you can be officially the bishop of this area now. Now we're cool. Bishops are allowed to be, you know, out and proud, right? Um, would have been precisely the people who collaborated and went along to get along back during the persecutions. And then out in Africa, you've got people saying, hell no, F that. We held the line when these guys didn't. And so their theories are dangerous from the perspective of the broader society because they say, if you're a priest who bent the knee and collaborated with the persecution, you're not a priest anymore. You're not even a Christian anymore. That means that the baptisms you perform don't count. The, the, you know, the blessings you give or if someone's on their deathbed and you, you know, sort of say a prayer for them, that might as well be armpit farts, none of that counts. We, the holdouts in North Africa, kind of like the Japanese guys on the islands at the end of the war, except again, paradoxically, their side won and they sort of wouldn't take yes for an answer. That is going <laughs> on. That goes on all through the 300s. Augustine, and, and, and I was just reading something last night, which said that there's traces of this visible as late as the late 600s when Islam takes over in this area is the first, is, is when it's finally wiped out. And Augustine is definitely in this fight. And when he converts and then eventually becomes a bishop and is back in North Africa kind of helping run stuff, he tries to find a way here. But he does reluctantly say things, I think, in his letters to people like, look, if you need to use torture to get these guys to call, I'm not torture, but if you need to use kind of rough means and take the gloves off to get these fanatics to stop attacking us, literally, physically, sometimes, do what you got to do. It's not nice, but these guys are threats to the community. Yeah, I mean, this didn't apply to all of them, but I've 
uh, going all the way back to like our first episode with the guests when we were talking with Bateman about the various radical political beliefs people have today. One of my favorites are one of the sects of Donatists that would like just their their theology was you need to just walk down the road and attack everybody you see so one of them can kill you and you can go to heaven. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty. I mean, as far as are these people dangerous? Well, maybe. Yeah. Like, that's that's pretty hardcore. It, I think it becomes really difficult to um, ban people who uh, used to persecute Christians when uh, a guy who did that wrote half the New Testament. Yeah, it's 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 <laughs> the the all through the New Testament in both Jesus's own parables and then the story of Saul slash Paul repentance and sort of the the face turn in wrestling terms mm-hmm. is, is is baked into Christianity from the very beginning. Uh, these guys are not having it. And uh, it seems sort of concentrated in or maybe maybe even located to and confined to North Africa. Uh, there's a long history. I, I don't know. I'm going way out on a limb here as to whether there was any memory or feeling in the North African provinces of, hey, we had our own thing. You know, Rome didn't just take us over easy the way it took over everybody else. We made them work for it. We had Carthage. We were an empire long before Rome even got going. I don't know if there was any sense of that. Um, the One of the biographies I was reading did say that Augustine would have thought of himself as Punic and would have sort of LARPed as that. Uh, very briefly, but Freud says that when Freud was a young man in Vienna or wherever he was, he would read about Hannibal and he would root for Hannibal because Hannibal was a Semite taking on all these Europeans. So, you know, as late as I mean, what Rome is, I mean, Freud is what, more than 2,000 years or, yeah, more than 2,000 years after Hannibal? And that's still speaking straight to him or think of Weinstein and the Arch of Titus, you know, like this is, this is, this is real stuff. That's that quote from Freud's hilarious. That you can you can glean a lot from that from that viewpoint. Uh, I mean, it probably wasn't a LARP for people in in uh, Augustus's time because sorry, Augustine's time because you know the thing about North Africa is that obviously it's disconnected from the rest of the empire by the Mediterranean, but there were all these overland trade routes with like with Berbers and people who you may or may not have been well not sub-saharan but people who were much much different and from a different entirely different cultural milieu than like let's say if you're if you're in the eastern part of the empire yeah there are people who are like barbarians around you but they're not as different from you as like numidians are from from uh your average roman it, it was i mean probably wasn't entirely a larp uh, the so I wanted to go back to before we get to the I don't know the juicy stuff. There's the one of the first things that happens in the book is this. There's almost an entire chapter devoted to it, and it was really interesting. The story about the peaches. Mm. Uh, it was the the story was it's a very simple one. He's talking about he it, the a whole of the confessions, especially the the early parts of it, are just I, literally confession. He's confessing all of the sins in the past and. Some of them were like, you know, Greek, gluttony, whatever. But this one was special, and I really, I liked it because it reminded me of, I mean, it's something that we can all relate to. The story is, 
he and a gang of other teenage boys, and like we're not talking about impoverished peasants or whatever. These are all pretty well-to-do people. They had money. He, he specifically says they had money. They didn't need to do what they did. They saw a peach tree that belonged to somebody. They went there at night. They shook all the peaches off of it and stole them. And they didn't even eat the peaches. They made typical bites, and then they fed them to the pigs. And he goes into great length about this story. And I think that the reason, well, I don't think he kind of says this, but it immediately reminded me of something that happened to me when I was young, or something I did when I was young. The thing that bothered him about this was that he didn't steal because he was greedy or hungry or gluttonous or anything like that. He just did it for the pure destructive joy mm. of stealing somebody's stuff and then throwing it in the garbage. The, the sin itself was fun. It reminded me on the last podcast we were talking, I was talking to Bog Beef. Bog Beef was talking about stealing a bicycle. Oh, yeah. And the in the story, like the bicycle, you stole a bicycle from somebody and you rode the bicycle around for three years. And I said, well, I never did that. But then I remember when I was a teenager, when I was the same age, say, St. Augustine was, we would steal, we stole stuff from like Walmart or whatever. And it was stuff we didn't need or want. We Some of it we literally just threw away. And it was just the pure act of theft that was so much fun to us and on some level that's way more evil than other crimes because it's it's for one thing you're not just hurting the person you steal from you are hurting yourself because you're reveling in doing something that's evil maybe it's my mi- really minorly it's evil. evil for its own sake it's right. not the evil. jean valjean oh my nephew needs food it's not even the bog beef hey now i have a bike bikes are awesome right it's it's pure evil in small scale but pure evil in that the point is that you're doing something wrong. That's why you're doing it. Yeah, there's nothing pragmatic about it at all. And, you know, everybody does, Everybody tells lies for pragmatic reasons. Sometimes you could even convince yourself. It might be true that sometimes like telling uh, your wife or your girlfriend that she looks good in that is better than telling her the truth if you don't think she does, right? So it's like are there, white are there lies. times when that's not the case? I think that's an always thing. <laughs> well, some, I mean, there are some people who would probably autistically say you should never lie or whatever, but there are pragmatic reasons to lie. There are pragmatic reasons to steal. It's not even just Jean Valjean thing, just like, you know, if somebody's got this nice thing, I want it for myself and take it. That's, that's bad, but to do something just out of spite, is a, a step up on the ladder. And he recognizes this in his own writings. Like He'll talk about things that happened later on that were worse and worse for him, but he really spent a lot of time talking about the peaches, and I found that really interesting. It is amazing, and I think that is what we were talking about this at the beginning, that, that what's really different about this than Caesar or a lot of other things, and you don't really see anything like this for at least another thousand years, I think, is his discussion of himself at earlier stages of his life where it makes it clear that he's in a different headspace now. And he's like, man, I was mm-hmm. that, you know, the layered aspect of it where he's far enough along in his life that he's looking back at his youth, at his infancy, or at least looking to other to infants that he sees now and now and inferring from that what he must've been like uh, the sense of his own life as a growing, changing thing and his own soul really as a growing, changing thing, uh, that's the unique aspect to it. And he's haunted throughout of it by what is evil. Uh, and we've mentioned this in Manichaeanism. In the Manichaeans are very insistent. Evil is a real physical thing in the world. Everything, they, they seem to be, 
it's weird because on the one hand, it's very esoteric and mystical and spiritualist. On the other hand, they seem to be insisting that there actually isn't any transcendent spirituality and that everything has an embodied physical existence. But they say that evil is a real thing. It's out there. It's sort of on the same level as good and that that is what's taking you over and making you do bad things. And he does not like, at least now as he's writing as a Catholic or as just a Christian, I mean, Catholic wouldn't have meant much to them back then. Um, he does not like that idea. And so he says, evil is not a thing. It's sort of an, it's a failure. Evil it's the is, absence. It's the absence of good. Evil goodness, is right? or evil is our wills, and he's very obsessed with the will. This is kind of the main concept to him: is how he can square all these circles. Our will does not always do the right thing. We turn away from the good. We turn away from God, and we go steal the fruit. We go do the sex pest stuff that we'll talk about soon. I'm sure you know. We go, <laughs> we, we go do whatever, but that's not because there's some little devil on our shoulder making us do it. It's because. We're falling short. And, and here's where he gets tripped up a little, because sometimes he seems to be saying the reason why our will is directed towards bad things sometimes or to why it falls short sometimes, he seems to be hinting sometimes that that's because our soul is trapped in a body. And that is not necessarily Manichaean, as I understand it, but that's that's the G that's the GN word. That's the Gnostic word. Which, well, and you can put. I mean, I know we're not. We're, we're we've agreed we're not going to denigrate any existing religions. But Manichaeism, Zoroastrianism, a lot of the Gnostic sects. The, there was an Eastern kind of, I don't know, genre of religion where this pops up, and there were Christian. What well, your your people would have called heresies in the past that this idea keeps cropping up over and over again, and it crops up not only in Christianity but in other religions, and it crops up throughout human history. I remember. I wish I could remember now. I read in it's like basically there was a, a Gnostic sect in ancient Greece. Like I can't remember who they who they were now, but their beliefs were like. They sounded ex suspiciously Gnostic. Would have been the hyper Dionysiacs that got really into the story that you know Dionysus is is destroyed, but then there's little sparks of him in us or something like that. It it might it might have been like if, if I guess it fits better with the Hellenistic view of the world because you know they don't have the they did whatever anyway. Long story short, yeah, this keeps popping up over and over again throughout history. Uh, the problem is, is if you, and this is kind of a problem with, not a problem, this is something that you have to deal with if you're a Christian, I think in general, is that, yeah, there is the material world, and then there is something that's not the material world, but you can't fall into the trap of, well, all, the material world is evil, and it's corrupt and bad, and the other place <laughs> is the source of all good, because, I mean, not only is that, not in line with the text that we all agree is you know, the way you're supposed to live your life, but it leads to patterns of thought that quickly turn you in, insane. You know, that's just, it, it, we know where this goes. We, we, you can, you can, you can look at the people who are in charge of everything today and see where that line of thought will bring you. Or, or to, t to, to take a clear example, and I don't, I don't consider this denigrating a contemporary religion, even though there may be some people who still roll like this. Do you remember Heaven's Gate? Mm -hmm. Yeah. These these guys who, you know, I think most of the guys castrated themselves 
Yeah. And they all dressed kind of very neutrally in running shoes and sweatpants and sweats. And, you know, a couple dozen of them in what, 97, 96, whenever that was, a couple dozen of them off themselves because their leader said this comet's coming and it's, you know, it's bringing, it's bringing uh, the apocalypse with it. They were all uh, smart guys. If you don't want to denigrate a living one, I'll give you one that's made up right now and it'll be really good version of a mystery religion. Uh, Here you go. Uh, the Garden of Eden was in space, okay, or wasn't on this earth. <laughs> Adam, when he was sent to this earth after the fall, uh, his he he got all his sort of um, he went in a spaceship, but he was you know given like a, a, some kind of like field around him so that he could travel through space in the vacuum without dying or whatever. That's not a large feat if you can send someone through space. Anyways. Uh, he got off course and he landed in Antarctica and his immortal body was frozen in Antarctica. He was supposed to give birth to the human race. However, he got off track. He just landed in Antarctica, froze. Lilith, then, from one of the secret books of the Bible that you weren't given. Yeah. Uh, she came next, landed, landed in Mesopotamia. She gave birth to... Uh, Humanity, but not really humanity, the false, evil humanity. Now, that's us. And so we are screwed up because we were born from Lilith. The only way to fix this is if we were to, let's say we took all the nuclear bombs on Earth and we blew them up <laughs> at once. You could <laughs> you could say this would like all these, you know, all these problems we have in the world, like, you know, a lot of people are poor and all this kind of stuff that you have racism. Uh, anyways, uh, this would create like a, uh, like a trans. You could take the world before and the world after all the bombs blow up. This would create sort of a transcendental level of existence in around earth, which would solve all these problems. Agreed. Sure. I mean, given if I accept this, if I accept the starting premise, then yeah, well, then this is this is basically all all Gnostic religions and stuff. Yeah, well, yeah, it is. Not going to get any arguments here. Yeah. yeah, that it's yeah. So, anyways, I, for a second I thought you were uh, you were going a different direction with that, and Tom Cruise is going to like yeah. paraglide in and just. Uh, that that's the one out of uh, fear more than respect that I don't. Really <laughs> yeah. But no, but but I, I actually thought by the reveal was going to be this is what the bad guys in Neon Evangelion believe. <laughs> the but um, oh man, that that opens up a whole Lovecraft rabbit hole that I don't want to go down. But uh, where he invented a lot of this stuff, which then different pop culture. I mean, I don't think you have the X Files without Lovecraft. I don't think you have a lot of stuff. Mm. With, I don't think you have a lot of stuff without Lovecraft. Uh, but the whole um, Antarctica and there's this buried spaceship in it or, or whatever. I mean, that's that's in the mountains of madness. That's he he invented he created the template for all that stuff. Um, I, I I for what somebody kept talking about Agartha over and over again as a meme, and so like I just googled uh -oh. what the heck that meant, and like I understand why that's a, a that's a meme because like the idea that like there's a secret place in Antarctica where there are dinosaurs and lizard people that's fun. I get that. I get why people get into that stuff. It's it's uh, it's also driven by some of that was driven by this persisted surprisingly late the insistence that geography had to be symmetrical. So 
Europeans kept thinking there had to be a giant continent in the South Pacific Ocean to balance out all the landmass. Uh, and then, relevant to your stomping grounds, Mark, I, I saw a, I came across not that long ago a map of Virginia, basically done in the 1600s. And there's a note on it which suggests that the West Coast and the Pacific Ocean are the same distance from the Appalachians as the Appalachians are from the East Coast. <laughs> and I think it's because they just thought it had to be symmetrical. So in other words, they thought that, you know, you could have walked from where you live to the Pacific Ocean in a week, in a week. <laughs> so, Kentucky, so Kentucky has yeah. a beach now. <laughs> Kentucky just merges into, it's kind of like that New Yorker cover, right? Where you see the world <laughs> from New York and it's just, you know, everything's foreshortened and then you have Japan out there somewhere, but none of it's really real. The, the So Augustine is shuffling through these different and ultimately for him, unsatisfying elitist ways of seeing things. Whether yeah, it's wasting time watching plays, catching VD from his mistress. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry I've got to add something here for Charles Haywood. Uh, so just like you need a you need a Buffalo club for the elites, uh, if you want nationalism, and I think you're a nationalist, uh, you need to, um, you have to create like a pseudo history where, uh, your people con conquered the world in the past at some point. Well, your people uh, were descended from Aeneas. <laughs> the Trojan War. Well, they, either the Trojan War had to happen in your country, or your pe or it happened somewhere. It happened in Greece or whatever, and then Aeneas came there and set up your country. Uh, <laughs> the Garden of Eden happened in your country, etc. Now, uh, like literally, everyone does this. I do this. Um, I've got a long explanation about this. The best example, <laughs> uh, there was a guy who was the smartest guy in the world in like, mm, I don't know, like the, I don't know, 1700, something like that. Like literally, like he was, you know, inventing, new, you know, the leading biologist, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he wrote, and he was a Swedish nationalist and he wrote a book saying that all these things were true about Sweden. And it's so well-written that it's very hard to like prove it's wrong, even though it, it's clearly bullshit. But like, uh, he will sort of take Greek words and say, well, here you can look this, you can see that this, uh, the, the name of, of, of the hill where the Trojan war happened, it's just like the name of the hill over by over where, where Gothenburg is clearly in like, it's just very not easy to disprove. Anyways, you need to well, do is, that. Is, is this a back door to get us to get the two of us to admit that the fountain of youth is real? Because like, isn't that in like literally in St. Augustine, Florida? I wanted yeah. to ask about that, Bog. Yeah. What is, what, what is the city in, uh, it, it is the oldest European, it's continuously yeah. inhabited European town in North America, correct? Absolutely. It is. What's the vibe? Is it a party town? Is it a sleepy town? Like what, what's the deal? Um, so it's, it's like, um, there's kind of like a, a, a new Orleans thing. And it's not like new Orleans at all, but new Orleans has like the, like old world colonial stuff going on there. Uh, so they have that. So in other words, there's like these old forts and, 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 and like really old buildings and stuff. I stayed in a, I stayed in a bed and breakfast that was like really old. Uh, anyways, it's a, it's a, like, it's a forgotten tourist town there's not very many people live there at all uh and there is uh however the college there flagler college was at one point was it during like the height of the robber baron era was the most expensive hotel 
in the United States, their air condition, air conditioning, air conditioning system was they literally had, of course, boats come from, uh, you know, whatever Iceland or Greenland or whatever would bring blocks of ice there. They would set it like next to vents on the wall and then have Irishmen on bicycles <laughs> that had like fans on the, you know, the, their, their bikes, they were bicycling that would turn fans that would blow wow. into these blocks of ice, giving them air conditioning, uh, in like, you know, the, the, the eight, late 1800s extremely or whatever. Extremely based. That's extremely based. You, you walk, you, you walk, you walk through, I mean, it is, it is a incredibly gorgeous place. However, like, it's gorgeous in the robber baron sense. In other words, it, this isn't this isn't a subtle beauty. There are gigantic, uh, uh, gigantic fountains, gigantic, uh, you know, over the top, uh, 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 chandeliers and stuff. Um, but it's I don't know. It's a sleepy little tourist town. But. Do you know? And I looked up on Wikipedia. I did not know this. Do you know why it's named after Saint Augustine? I'll say it your way, Saint Augustine. I don't know. Well, this says that whatever expedition the day they first caught sight of land was his feast day, August 28th, 1565, which just happened to be the feast day. So, you know, these guys, they're in a boat, they're in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, but they still know what day it is, whose feast day it is, who's the saint. Oh, yeah, it's Augustine. He's a big deal. Everybody kind of likes him. Let's name it after him. So that, you know, uh, uh, 1100, you know, 1130 years after Augustine died, he was still pulling that kind of cultural cachet. Yeah. All right. Well, we want to start talking about the... Um, uh, well, do we want to do the patronage angle first or the sex pest <laughs> angle first? Because they're both they're, 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 they're both pretty good layers to this onion. Um, I guess we do... Before we move on, do we do we cover everything in, in, in part one? In, uh, not really. I mean, we're, we're, uh, we kind of skipped ahead to part two, I think, a little bit, but we didn't do the explicitly sex pest angle to it. I mean, maybe, maybe that's a good way to get because the, the patronage aspect doesn't become clear until he moves to Italy. So let, let's start with this. Um, getting into this sort of Gnostic stuff, one aspect of Gnosticism, as I understand it, is a, a discomfort with the body. And an idea that the physical world is gross, filthy, evil in some way. And anything that reminds Gnostics that they have a body, uh, but especially sort of anything in the realm of sex and procreation, uh, is, is just kind of grosses them out. Paradoxically, Augustine seems to be the opposite. <laughs> the, the, re the reason he, I mean, he just, you know, he just straight up says at least a dozen times in this book, I was intellectually mostly already there with Christianity. But how, how shall I put this? Um, he was a coomer. I, well, you, you have said many times, never bet against the coomers of the most powerful force <laughs> on earth. And Augustine, you know, it's a little unclear when he first described it. It's when he's talking about going to school. You know, when his parents send him to the fancier school in another town, he kind of, he doesn't fill in the details. This isn't a biography, an autobiography in the modern 19th or 20th century sense. So he doesn't spell out exactly what he's talking about. But um, he has, uh, you know, uh, changes happen to his body and he's all about it. And, uh, you know. I, I I need to do, I need to defend the Coomer here for a second. Okay. In defense <laughs> of the Coomer. Okay, because first off, there are who among us? 
there are quite many vices that different humans have that different different people have there's you know uh and different people seem to have uh sort of different uh predilections towards one or the other for example um you know we've been talking about there's a new film being made about cleopatra you have uh, mark anthony is a coomer he's a horny guy uh octavius is not that's not that's not one of his faults however sorry go ahead merrick i was just gonna say you know uh, saint augustine's not a coomer like coomer implies that you like he's seems more like a ladies man. Like or Anthony, he's a ladies man. He might be a degenerate, cause like he's oversexed or whatever. He's got he's got uh, the p word on the brain. But that's not really a coomer. Like coomer is something is something. I agree with com- you. Completely different. Yeah, I, a coomer is a guy who's sitting. You know. Yeah. Well, well, here, well, that's the thing. There is something different about we'll say the horny guy. Okay. Be, yeah. Because like first off, uh, who's like one of the. I don't know if it's actually in the Bible, because uh, but it's one of those things that's um in in this moment I will be Catholic. Oh, I will be Catholic and say that ah! this is a uh, part of the accepted tradition. But uh, uh, David had a had a heart after God. Yes. Yes. And that that isn't actually in the Bible, is it? Yeah, he David wants to do the right thing, but he also does a lot of not cool things that mm-hmm. nobody, including God, is okay with. Right, right. But but God says like, but there's literally like like he God's like this this man has a heart after me. His his well, and his view seems to be a little like Lincoln's view of Grant. Well, I can't spare this man. He fights. Right. I can't I can't spare <laughs> this guy because he's he he personally you know sort of a cyber thing. Personally, he's kind of nasty dude. But he's on the right side, and he's a very effective warrior for the Hebrews against their enemies. Right. So you, so and and David, horny guy, um, our our great great Donald Trump president, horny guy. Nobody here has to make any comments about that. Uh, but horny guy. Yet he specifically repeatedly over and over again says that he does not uh, agree with masturbation. Didn't Howard Stern try to, didn't Howard Stern interrogate him over this once? Yes. And nobody, he said, come on, every once in a while. And he's like, nope. He said, no, he, he, was, he had the funniest answer to this. was like, never done it. That's not my world. That's, that's such a perfect. <laughs> that's, that's totally. <laughs> not my vibe, guys. That is a passionate, passionate man. <laughs> it, it's different. Like, this goes for, for this goes, so like, we've talked about this before. That there are women like you can tell this by the men that they date. Some if if the woman's dating history is like, um, you know, people around like uh, uh, you know, other guy at work or or you know the the uh more specifically stuff like uh you know a talent agent or something like that. That's someone that has if if woman is sleeping with a talent agent and that's pretty much it. Just guys like that. They have a firm control over their sexuality. Someone like Cleopatra. Have very firm control of their sexuality. They're not sort of ruled by their passions. If the woman, yeah. if the woman's the kind of woman that, she, well, she likes, uh, you know, uh, ball ball players. This guy, that you know, a uh, rock star, Marilyn Monroe, bikers, right. bikers, right? Then that that's yeah, they're ruled by that. They're yeah, they're ruled by their lust, or they just you know that's what they're spun to. Because like the woman that the the the, the Cleopatra, she's not real Cleopatra, or the woman who dates the talent scout. They're like 
they just have a different thing they're optimizing for. That doesn't really make you a great person to date a talent scout so they can get your role in a movie. However, it does prove that you have a certain amount of control over your sexuality. You know what I'm saying? The difference is that Coomer is, I won't say it's not redeemable, but like you have to like, you have to give up the, the, the life of cooming, right? You have to just ch- fundamentally change who you are. You can't do that. You can't be the guy in the basement. But I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say the, no to that. The, well, now listen, but the, I'm talking about the coomer. Now the, the guy who's really the passionate man, you can redirect that. You're you're doing a, no, a no true coomer kind of thing. No true Scotsman here to, 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 to the, the horny guy, the difference between it and other passions is that it like because you'll hear you'll hear this occasionally the guys be like well I, you know i have a problem with this as opposed to like other other sort of like if you have a problem with gambling you need to stop gambling whatsoever and etc and it's like if you uh if you have a problem with this uh and they're like this isn't a thing where it's like well we need to just eliminate this impulse from you it's like no actually this impulse isn't the worst thing in the world it's kind of like reason we have civilization you, just, you, need, to, you need to channel it this, in a needs, this needs to go into a safer this needs to go right. into a happier direction because being like, horny and coomer are not the same thing like horny guys can become coomers that happens but that's not necessarily the same thing. Like when I say coomer, like okay, Un- well, untreated is a untreated uh, horny guy. Well, Mark, Mark, like, is is your core definition of a coomer someone who's more in love with themselves and 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 what they see on a screen than any actual person out in the real world? That well, that that can be part of it. More, most importantly, it's you've got to be chasing the excess permanently. You can't ever you like like. Donald Trump is a we'll say we'll say a horny guy. He all of his wives have been beautiful Eastern European attractive women. He famously messed around with uh, adult film star. That's horny person behavior. It's bad behavior. You shouldn't do that. But it's not the same thing as Coomer. Coomers are the people who invent all these new weird identities and do things that have take have to take things to the next level, and it never stops. Horny guys can just be horny for, you know, just for attractive women to sleep with them forever and ever and ever. Yeah. Like someone like Russell Brand, maybe he's a coomer, maybe not. Could 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 be edge case. Could go either way. Definitely a horny guy. Could be a coomer. You know, there's a. I think there's a difference here in these two things. And this and this is a, such a funny thing to be talking about when we're talking about Saint Augustine. But like you know. There's nothing in his writings that suggested that he was doing, he was into weird stuff. It's just he really liked women and he always wanted to have a woman to have to sleep with. And, you know, that's not necessarily what you would call coomer behavior. It might and, be horny the, behavior. The, well, but the, and the single most famous one liner from the whole confessions is he's remembering what his mindset was. I think he's already in Rome or even Milan. He's on the verge of getting baptized and converting, but he just can't commit. And he's writing this a decade or two later, sort of parodying his mindset at the time. And he says, back then I was saying, oh, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Yes. Right. And and, and that, that became the famous thing everybody remembers about him, which is like, it's it, that's such a pity. That's what people remember, because. 
like he's not he's he's lampooning. He's yeah. saying this is a, a bad mindset. But like they take that to be Literally. oh well, this guy yeah. said that, so it must be okay. Like, yeah, it's, it, it's it, a shame. It, yes, in context, it's this wry sort of you know it, it it's a recognizable. Yeah. I mean, I forget which letter of Paul. Paul says at one point, that which I would do, I do not. And that which I would not do, I do. So he <laughs> similarly has this idea mm-hmm. of like, hey, what you know you should do and what you end up doing in your habits, rarely the same thing. The second most popular day people start a diet is on January 1st. <laughs> the most popular day people start a diet is tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and yeah, he is. Uh, I was talking about that earlier. The, the sort of brilliant thing where he's like, uh, you know, I found that my parents did not accept their their rightful subservience to me. Yeah. He's <laughs> he's, he's he's sort of a brilliant thing. But yeah. But the but horny guy once again, remember, is David the best? You know, the most of us. And the, but there is like we'll, we'll set a coomer aside. Remember that this is a certain way that you can like everybody has their own sort of vices or whatever. And so like most guys uh, aren't like everybody is going to look at stormy Daniels and say, well, that's an attractive woman. Uh, maybe this is, maybe I shouldn't say this, but you know what I'm saying? Like the, yeah. the willingness to like, Oh, well, actually I'm going to pick up the phone and go there. That is a certain type of guy. However, these guys are not the worst among us. And in fact, uh, I, I've heard this talked about the other day that like, uh, most of the big failure, a lot of people that sort of, um, I, I, I think a Gen Xer wrote this. They were saying, like, I'm a Gen Xer and I'm looking across both parts of my vision at, at, at the boomer and the millennial. And they said basically, like, all the there's no millennial that's as horny as a boomer. They don't have that. <laughs> I, I, there was a great tweet going around the other day that this is, I think this is more of a black thing, but. Uh, you'll hear this. Uh, it, this was like a young black meme against black boomers, where they said it was like, uh, "Oh, it was like old old MFers are crazy. They will say stuff like, girl, you walk this way one more time, I'm gonna f you.'" Oh, the now is I think there's a couple things. I think you're right about that shift, and I think there's a couple reasons for it. They're not mutually exclusive. There's the chemicals in the water that are turning the freaking frogs gay and the atrazine and the, you know, whatever, right? The mm-hmm. Ben Braddock mm-hmm. stuff. That's probably a big part of it. There's um, people below a certain age, almost all of us have had it kind of trained into us that you just, you don't, you don't talk that way. Uh, mm-hmm. Either for, either for social shame or because you'll get, you know, fired, right? At least depending on what, what, what your job is. Going back to talking about these little esoteric uh, religions or, or political philosophies or whatever, well, if the breeding ground for those is college, college also has been a site of massive experimentation and just how far you can reprogram people's uh, uh, instincts and, and, and the traditional male-female dynamic because the threat is always will we'll kick you out of school or, or worse. Uh, and I, I think that's I think it's all going on. Um there's also, I don't know, is this a cyclical Glub thing? Does I forget if Glub says, if Glub talks about yeah. the end stage. So think about like in Egypt, you know, Egypt starts so early that it's a really good model for this because they go through like three or four Glub cycles on their own before anybody else even shows up on the scene. 
But at some point, you see a lot of androgynous. You know, this is the model for Stargate and the pseudo god mm-hmm. Stargate. All the androgynous stuff with the eyeliner that they were into that. You know, Elagabalus in Rome's decadent period. But it seems th- there's an obsession we have in our society with are the kids having sex? Are they not having sex? Right? Like every couple weeks, it seems like someone writes a new article about like are 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 the Zoomers smashing or not? I would just say, I mean, like, so there, there's clearly like technological reasons why this would be the case. But however, like, um, you take your average millennial or zoomer and put them in, say, a strip club or whatever, I don't think they're going to feel comfortable. That, yeah. It, however, I don't think that really means that they're morally superior. Like, I, I think, in fact, strip clubs will probably, it'll, the strippers make way less money than before. They will probably either go out of business or they'll just be far less of them. That is just sort of not how sexuality works anymore. Uh, the, but you've gone from perhaps horny guy to coomers. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> horny guys uh, is <laughs> part of the expansive, expansive phase of the civilization cycle. The horny man looks outward. The coomer, the coomer looks inward. He's part of the other decline. Good example. Not my, uh, not my scene, man. You you referenced him earlier, Claudius Gibbon, who uh, was living at the time of the, we'll say, not the twilight, but this was a, a epoch in the British Empire that was bad. It was th- it was it was rough times. If it if it wasn't quite age, it was maybe uh, Adrian or no, maybe it was the cr- their crisis, it's, right? It's, I mean, it's about, I think the first volume of Decline and Fall <laughs> is published. In 1776, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. so it's it's good timing. Yes. So it's it's not you know they they're gonna they're gonna go on for struggle on for another like 120 years, but basically it they're on the they're epic, on the decline. The epic heroic period is over, and they're shifting right. into the managerial period. At that yes, and and you know Gibbon fam- like pretty famously, as you said before, lays the blame uh, on you know on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for, for bringing about the end of the Roman Empire. But, like, look at Gibbon himself, the man. Uh, he's a weird, ugly person. He's got, like, physical deformities that make his life difficult. Uh, he was an out, a social outcast because he was, I don't know, a, a nerd, pretty much. Uh, yeah, he's going to have that view. And, yeah, he's the kind of person who can come to prominence at these periods in, of time. And this is just how this works. And when you're when you're reaching up, but in Glob's uh, little treatise about this, he says like it's not necessarily a physical decline, by the way. But what what does happen is, and I think Spengler talks about this at length. You once people get too far in their inside their heads, they just stop caring about these things on at the same on the same level that a normal person does. So it's like. You 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 can become so far up your own ass that you have an existential crisis about reproducing or just I guess mating in general. If, having if, a, if you have to explain to someone why it's a good thing to like produce a new generation, then you're kind of it's already yeah. over, right? It's, yeah, that's that's pretty much what the conclusion Spengler came to. But yeah, I, th- I think that's that's true. Although it's not like necessarily a physical decline, like like Glub says. The people who were at the end of the Roman Empire were very were like very healthy. The people at the end of the British Empire were physically good specimens. They were 
for the, in their example, they were physically more impressive than they had ever been. But something inside them has changed, and this is what this is the change from the. We'll say this is the change from the horny man to the coomer. The coomer mm-hmm. is the is the guy in the in the in the man cave making up new identities and new weird fetishes, and the the horny guy is just out there making moves and ruining his life by chasing after women too much. I always use. I've I've used this example for both of you guys have heard this, but for people who haven't, uh, we were this was uh, there was this every now and then there's like a meme that really blows up that's like just kind of the meme of the moment like um, uh, one of the best which by the way was a straight up boomer meme uh, was the um, the the co- dancing coffin guys in Africa meme. Mm-hmm. Da, 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 da. Yeah, don't let people tell you boomers can't meme because a lot of the biggest ones come from straight boomer stuff. And that one was a boomer meme. That was an excellent one. Uh, but anyways, uh, there was one where it's like, I don't know, maybe 10 to 12 seconds of uh, this girl. She's dancing in her room to a song, uh, hit or miss. You can <laughs> see her midriff and she does a little twirl and her skirt comes up a little bit, but it's it's just... It's just a, a pretty girl dancing for like 12. Nothing you couldn't have seen in the 60s on TV and Ed Sullivan show, right? Yeah, it wasn't anything super graphic, but it's just an attractive young lady dancing. You, Jane Fonda probably would have showed you a lot more in certain yeah. certain films. But yes, uh, just an attractive girl dancing. There's nothing even, there, there. you don't see anything or anything like that. Just attractive girl dancing and smiling and stuff, by the way, mm-hmm. which guys like a lot. But, you know, we th- that's sort of like... Um, that's that is even something that is like uh uh they were confused the young people were confused why they liked that right yeah this guy posted this video and he was like a guy you know he said like he's like i watched this video and my heart rate went up i started feeling all these strange things and then he immediately goes into all the philosophy books that he read and that he was reading <laughs> oh, oh no player no because no. he like he this Remember the the phys the re, the physical reality is there. You are a and, and he was a young guy. This guy's like seventeen, eighteen. You're a seventeen, eighteen year old girl. You a seventeen, eighteen year old male. You see a pretty girl smiling and dancing in a short skirt. Your job is to go get that. Yeah, you are supposed to feel very strange things. That is supposed that uh you know uh Adam Carolla told this story that. He goes out, he's, he's, uh, eating lunch at like a uh, Benihana's or something like that. And he's with, and you know, he's kind of a, this masculine celebrity guy. And he is with like a, uh, a race car driver, a rock star, which he knows all these rock stars because he was on K rock. K rock was like sort of innately tr- tied to like literal rock stardom. Uh, they had the weenie roast every year. These guys are like, like any rock star you can name, like goes to his house and be parties with. Because of they had this K Rock thing. Anyways, he's eating lunch at Benihana's with rock stars, and he says this little nineteen-year-old hostess is walks up and sets him at the table. And he said, in that moment, he was like, "We were all peasants, and we were mm-hmm. in the presence of a you know of of royalty because well, she's got something they all want, and any male could have told you that in certain times of." of space that like well of course you're male you want you like pretty girls because you're a horny guy that's what you are that that you you should you should know that about yourself i mean this in 
I'll, Mark, I'll tell Mark, I heard you say this. This is going back probably a year or more, but on one of you guys' episodes, you I think, Mark, you said this, something very close to this. You could analyze all your romantic relationships as pheromones and hormones and everything, but you shouldn't do that. You'll mess yourself yeah. up by doing that. It's just drive yourself nuts. It's a bad idea. Exactly. You you beat me to the punch. You, like if we're uh, go, I I love I love referencing Glub and you know the the last stage of the Empire is the age of intellect, right? And like in, intellect, you use your intellect to repress your lizard brain, some of your lizard brain, not necessarily desires but impulses. Like it, sometimes it's good. It's like if I see a person that I've never met before in the street, my lizard brain impulse is to pick up a rock and I bludgeon him to death because this is a stranger. He's here to take my take my resources and my women. I need to I need to I need to kill him and you know whatever. Uh, you shouldn't do that. It's good that you can repress your lizard brain instincts and and not do that. But then like you can go you go so far with it by the end that you're like you're analyzing. Hmm. Should I reproduce with another person, or why is it that the, this 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 image of this young woman creates these feelings in me? What's going on? Like you should that that's too much. You your intellect has strangled your humanity. And if you go by all this, the, you know this, the historical cycle idea is pretty simple. It's that you civilization screws up people eventually to the point where you have to just. Uh, reset and start over with with new like unfortunately with new well not always with new people but most of the time it's unfortunately with new people and like that's that's what that is and that's what's going to like if you can't even understand why a beautiful young woman makes you feel good you're a candidate for a re, uh, like a great reset that's going to do a Claus Schwab anyway you know Freud said that uh uh, Freud said, if we did not have urban civilization, you could throw all my books in the trash. Yeah. Now, now I, this, this is something I've wanted for, for a long time now to ask about on that point about cities, because I think you two are going to have different answers to this, but I want to, I want to check my assumption there. Are cities inherently a bad thing? I'm almost positive. Mark would say, yes, I think Bob would say it depends. Am I right on that? They serve a purpose. You, I mean, you can't get around that. And yeah, I mean, yes, it's scale is the enemy of mankind. So, like, when you say city, what do you mean? Do you mean like a, a metropolis? Do you mean Rome? Well, or like, it, it, a, Jefferson seemed to think that the cities, if we can call them that by modern terms, that already existed in the English colonies were already too big. And we're already sort of cesspools of vice and yeah. corruption. I mean, maybe he was. I mean, maybe he was right about that. There's a strong case we made for that. But the the reason I ask, or or, or Bog, what I, am I right, Bog, that you're a little more ambivalent, or do you, do you more or less agree that the more people you pack together is is not a good idea? I'll I'll be bold and just make this dumb statement that everybody wants. Uh, once you get about twenty five thousand people, anything past that is just inherently bad. It's not you're, it, it's not good. It's all downhill from there. So Go ahead, Bobby. The, the way I, um, so regarding like if they are bad inherently or not, I don't know. And, and the only reason why I, I stay away from that question is because there are people who do take that question very, take that question seriously. There is a couple of right wing people that take that, that question seriously. In fact, uh, Mr. Matt Gates lives in one of the only six, like, and what, what is the answer? Like, so the answer to that is these various things. A left wing person will tell you, um, 
uh, five minute city or whatever, a right wing person will tell you like you like the wrath of Genon account on Twitter is very good. It's sort of about this sort of topic that like you 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 can cre- construct these all, all like artificial like the Shire or whatever uh, and all this kinds of thing. Uh, I you know looking seeing at the limited results of that, which by the way, I mean the place where Matt Gates lives is a it's the most successful version of that in the United States and for the most part nobody lives there. Uh so <laughs> what you've dealt what you're dealt with It's probably the point, right? Well, I mean it wasn't supposed to. They have a they have a little they there is like a there is a like it is built to be an alternative community, but no one like no one actually goes to the church building they built for it. No one there's uh, the only people that shop at the supermarket they built for are tourists. I would just say easy, easy answer to this question, I guess, Claudius, would be if you were the richest man in the world, where would you want to live? Would you want to live in like a nice high rise well, in Manhattan? Or you, I mean, I would want to put as much space between me and everybody else as possible. Well, do I only get to pick one? Like you're saying I'm the richest man in the world, but I can only <laughs> pick one place to live, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The real answer is they always have a place in the city and they have a place yeah. way the hell out away from Bingo. Yeah. That's, that's all you can do. Because, yeah. uh, unfortunately, and if you're really baller, you commute by helicopter from your mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut to your, <laughs> to, to wall street or, or in Seattle, they'll do it by seaplane sometimes, which is kind of cool. Oh, that, that is That's what the flag. kids call Kino. That's yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. And by the way, this goes back to the Roman empire. You have a, uh, yes, you, the you, villa. Get a, you get a chateau in Rome where you keep your secret lover, Cleopatra the seventh. <laughs> and and your uh and your bastard son in and then your wife is back in Campania on 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 the uh the, the largest state or whatever. You, you you see this even in Rome to this day. So um the downtown, you know, the historical center of Rome, you have the palazzo, the palace, right, which is a can be a whole city block, but it's still a building in an urban setting. Out in the suburbs, you had the villa. Uh, so there'll be some families that were baller enough that both their villa and their palazzo survive and are kind of museums today. Yeah. The the issue is that the issue with, with all these sort of uh like trying to defeat this dynamic of either of like the city must exist versus uh so that like, like, so you have like three positions here. You have like, uh, okay, we can like beat this using uh, urban planning. You have, uh, cities are terrible. We should live in, we should all live in rural settings or the only other thing I'll bring up here today is like, well, cities are inevitable. I mean, the, the, the problem with, with trying to fix them is that this doesn't actually map onto human production at all. There's in fact, there's never going to be a place for people to work in these ideal communities that sort of beat the city. Uh, so they're never going to work until we have teleportation machines or whatever. And then this, then you have a fake city. So if we are going to, in fact, have things like, uh, manufacturing at all, there will be cities and it will be in all, and the cities will probably have crime. They'll surely have uh, negative birth rates and your best, your best bet is to go there for, uh, go there and make as rat hole as much money as you possibly can until you have your, you have a kid or two and then get the hell out. That's all I can tell you. Would you rather be a milk cow or a meat cow? 
uh, milk cow. There you go. Uh, if if you if you live out in the country, you're a milk cow. If you if you <laughs> if you live in the city, guess what? Well, I mean, even you're you're, you're going to be a hamburger. Even worse. Like the real problem with this is that so we always we all the people on one of the 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 biggest topics in the distant right wing is the sort of urban versus rural thing. Mm-hmm. And Shake Shack. The the place I live in, <laughs> the place I live in, born in doesn't qualify for either of these at all. Yeah. And I always, and like to not dox myself, I'll tell people, go tell me if Ocala, Florida is rural or it's urban. It is absolutely neither. Can I take a victory lap on the Shake Shack thing? Cause that, that's, you know, Bobby, if you've had so many memes that caught on, like women are passionate about social justice, so many funny memes. I've, I've, I've never, this is my only catchphrase that ever really caught on. It has a life of its own. I don't think you people even realize that I'm the one that, no, did, that I did that. I had no idea. Yeah. You didn't know that? I yeah. did not. I didn't yeah, know. I, it started like, I, I'm going to, I'm going to dine out on this. It started yeah. like Let a me couple quote years you. back. Let me quote you. All right, there you go. Get the, get the lore. Get the get the tablets here. Eric was replying to someone else's comment, and he said, oh, people who live within a square mile of a Shake Shack are having opinions about the Second Amendment again. Oh. Yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm, I'm walking around on Ocala on Google Maps now, and it, it's all relative, right? Because this would be urban to someone living in, you know, the middle of the desert. Nobody, you know, hardly any... They're, uh, there are many as many farmers there as yep. there are in Westchester County, New well, York. Is this, is this a Florida thing though? Because like even Miami, right? The Miami just stops. Miami is city, 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 and then just agricultural fields with nothing in between. Is the impression I've gotten of it? Right. Technically, Ocala is a city, and like basically everywhere that has a, even a small amount of people is considered a city. When they do that rural versus urban stats, and they say like, ah. Oh, there's so many, uh, this percentage of people live in urban settings in the United States. Like, they're counting places like Ocala. Like, that counts as a city. Basically, everything. It, is it if the population density gets above something per mile or whatever, it's just considered urban? I mean, Ocala is 63,000 people. That's that's even big. You don't even have to be that big. Like there's uh, There are cities here sure. in Virginia that are like 10,000 people. But, but by the way, and if, if anyone's uh, to cut, cut you out of the past, it is not suburbs. It is way too far away. No one is driving yeah. from Ocala because the other option, they'll say, well, it's a suburb. Well, this is not a suburb and it's not an exurb. There's nobody that gets up in the morning uh, that drives to Tampa or Orlando. Uh, they're too far away. They're just too far away. The re- now- There's no college there either, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, Athens, Georgia. Yep. Uh, there's no college either. That's the way you can sort of cheat, right? A lot of towns that on paper Mm. you think this should be a deep red area. Oh, there's a school there, right? That's that's, that's the gulag, the the blue log archipelago, I used to call it. (laughs) The government government takes a giant treasure chest of gold doubloons and drops it off there twice a year. Well, I mean, mean, Mark, is Danville is probably about the same population as Charlottesville, right? Uh, Probably. Very different vibe, though. Yeah, and I mean, my local city has a school, and they've just absolutely they're yeah driving into the ground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You'll you'll notice <laughs> you can you notice it just by being there. If you go through places like Danville, even Roanoke, whatever, they aren't that big, but they're not. Uh, Shawsville wasn't much bigger than those places before. Totally different experience that include right down to the people who were there, the demographics. By the way, it's all different. But 
Let's go back. A, ra- a rare moment where Bog Beef is the one bringing us back from outer space instead of me having <laughs> well, to do we, it. Augustine's we can actually bring it back. We, we can bring it back real directly. Here's how. Uh, you know what at least the folk etymology of pagan is? No idea if this is real or not. Mm-mm. The countryside. The Paganus is allegedly the term for, like, you know, the hinterland, the boonies, the countryside. So the implication there being that it took a long time for Christianity to really take hold everywhere Varg, and in the less dense areas. That's the whole Varg Vikernes. Uh, uh, uh. Is this is this like the guys, like, to this day in rural, and Malcolm may be able to confirm this, but my understanding is to this day in kind of rural Scandinavia, if you're a farmer you'll leave part of your field un, you know, untouched because that's for Thor. Right. The The missionaries didn't get there until like, you know, the 40s or whatever, which there's a lot, a lot of things like that. There- Allegedly, there were literal Hellenistic pagans in like Lacedaemonia up until yeah. the, 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 like well into the Middle Ages. I don't know if that's true or not, supposedly. We didn't. I, I believe it. And, we- and because... In the same way, you have the Shake Shack, and then it's it, it trickles down. You know, every little town with a school in it is sort of a a colony in a way of the Blue Borg mother brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all, all every library and every public school a teacher is definitely super progressive, no matter how far in the hinterland they live. Now, now you see this this tension is already there to some extent in the Gospels themselves, because going into or up to Jerusalem and back out of it again is a bit, you're in a whole different world when Jesus is his disciples and the followers go into Jerusalem than when they're out in Galilee and kind of wandering around in the, in the less dense, less urban area, the stakes are instantly higher. The spies are everywhere. Mm -hmm. The mob can turn as it ends up doing can turn on you at any second. And, And just the sense is that the stakes are so much higher. You, in Augustine's narrative, he doesn't seem too concerned about this because he's too concerned about, you know, his mistresses and his, his guilt about his mistresses and his weird relationship with his mom and stuff. But you do see a couple little signs of it. I forget if he's in Rome or Milan when he's, no, I think he's in Rome still when he's describing this. Uh, he sees like a, just a drunk, just kind of walking down the street, just singing to himself, just drunk, not a care in the world. And that feels very care. I mean, you know, people get drunk all over, but the idea of just someone walking down the street, like yelling to themselves, I'm sure it happens where you live, Mark, but it's a day, literally daily and hourly occurrence in, in my neighborhood in DC. I, I had it happen to me. I mean, I've had it happen to me one time in my entire life where someone, a crazy person accosted me like uh, directly. And that was in the Walmart parking lot. And it's funny because it was in like the, a town that has like, that's, a lot smaller than one like it's not the city Walmart where the college is. It's it's one in the middle of nowhere. And I went there. There's this guy, this guy out in the parking lot, just like he was talking to random people. And I thought he was trying to like get him to go to his church or whatever, because that happens. He walks up to me. He's like, and he asked me some weird question about God. And I just said, uh, he asked me like, do I believe in God? He's like, yeah. Have a good day, sir. And I just kept walking. Yep. He goes, "Oh, you must be Jewish. This guy's Jewish over here. Look at this guy. He's." <laughs> and like, I was like, "Wow, that escalated really quickly." And then he just kind of walked off. And by the time I went in and bought all my stuff at Walmart and came back out, he was still talking to people. wasn't violent or anything. He was just, I guess, randomly accusing people of uh, being, 
Hebrew for for whatever for whatever that's, reason. That's interesting you say that because both my wife and so I'm not Jewish either by faith or by ethnicity, but but I have had stuff like that yelled at me by crazy people in various college towns over the years. Um, I don't know. It's an odd. Yeah, I, it, it, it's it was strange because like um, I'm Anglo-Germanic and I look really. I don't look. Jewish yeah. or anything. I don't have curly hair. I don't have dark. That, I have that, blue that eyes. That seems to mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And the the less stable those people get, the the scarier those meanings tend to take on. <laughs> yeah, the, maybe he was a. Maybe he meant I was one of those uh, black, by the, black Israelites. By the way, you know, you see, you go to Jerusalem, and it's like it's you know, it's one way, and you go to the hinterlands the other way. Didn't it? If you go to Samaria, it's like North Korea. Yeah. They- they had, I mean, I mean, now or back then? Well, back it was, then, in the Bible. Yeah, it was seen as a weird, yes, it was, you were on hostile territory. Yeah. And that gets into what we were talking about the last episode, which is this is where the guys would have stuck around and not been carted off to Babylon. And so after the Babylonian captivity ended, there was kind of some mutual hostility that kept getting worse and worse and worse. The whole point of the Good Samaritan uh, parable is that the Samaritans are supposed to be the scum of the earth from the, from the mainstream Jewish perspective. And yet it was a Samaritan who actually bothers to stop and help the guy who gets beaten up by the robbers. That's supposed to be a big, what reveal, you know, that's, that's, that's supposed to surprise you. Yeah. If you're, if you're in Samaria and you're doing the kind of, it's an anachronistic word, but the Orthodox practice, you, 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 you're, you're not going to have a good time. Uh, another thing that is interestingly urban and is also a good segue to the patronage is Augustine has all these little homies and big homies in Rome and then in Milan. And did you notice that when he's explaining his friends, uh, both his fellow professors and philosophers and stuff, but then also his fellow, not exactly converts yet, but you know, Christianity adjacent, Christianity curious people, he makes a point for most of them of noting that they're from Africa and in a lot of cases from his hometown. It, it, it seems like, and I have a friend who lived in New York city and he said that when he lived there, he eventually had a revelation that New York city is so big. I've never lived there. I have a lot of relatives and friends who live there, but I've never lived there. I've visited there a bunch of times, but never lived there. Uh, but if you live there long enough, you just realize you have like a revelation of this town has everything. And the story he told was like a Somali guy who was in town for a few months being like, where are all the Somalis? And then he just found them. You know, he ended up finding little Mogadishu. and was like, oh, here, we've been here the whole time. Where have you been? And it's just like a couple blocks. We're like, that's where the Somali guys live. I, I got this impression from August, uh, Augustine telling the narrative of him uh, and, and his friends in Italy that they did the same thing. You're in these big cities, you're in the heart of the empire, at least the Western heart of the empire, but you are going to naturally connect up with the people that you have a family or a hometown connection with. That's totally human nature. I think in DC, every part of the country has its own representatives in DC, literally the people who they elect, and then the staffers that those people bring with them from home. And so every NFL team, every college team, There'll be the bar that, oh, if you're Alabama, you go to this bar. If you're from Wyoming, you go to this bar and you root for your guys there. They will always have the game on. They will pay whatever extra package they need to do to get your team's games on. It seems like there was a version of that in the ancient world. You know, they didn't have TV, but they had the equivalent cultural stuff, whatever. And that's who he's gravitating towards. And one of the urban things in terms of the big scale of the urban 
is one of his friends gets mistaken for a thief. And it looks like his friend is about to be sent in chains to prison, which it seems like in the ancient world, if you went to jail, they'd just torture you for fun, not necessarily as official punishment, but just like that's what mm-hmm. happened to you when you went to jail. And then did you notice how the friend gets saved? There's a guy in the crowd who's an architect. But the architect, so Olypius is the name of Augustine's friend who's almost getting arrested here. But the architect had often seen Olypius in the house of one of the senators at which he was in the habit of calling. That's your smoking gun. If there's a senator and other lesser people are in the habit of calling on their houses, that is ground zero paradigm of patronage. If you're a big man in Rome, all the way down to this point, certainly Cicero, what do you spend your morning doing? All yeah, your, you're in your little office meeting with your clients. Your homies, and you, they could be your poor relatives, they could be your workers, they could be your business partners, but they're lesser than you. They're coming to you, you're making it good, you're saying, hey, did you take care of that thing? Did you talk to that guy? And then you're going to do what I need you to do, just like the opening scene of The Godfather. You know, it, it, everybody else really, is having a party, The Godfather has to deal with everybody coming and asking him for crap. Probably, I mean, a lot of people listening to this know this already, but a lot of people probably don't. Because it's one of those fascinating things you were uh, talking about Pompeii. And one of the cool things about Pompeii is that the volcanic eruption and buried everything and all that ash kind of freeze-dried a Roman city. So you could see as, like, I mean, obviously it wasn't in perfect condition. It wasn't frozen in ice or whatever. But they've been able to reconstruct a lot of us. And, like, the houses in the city, the domus, were designed around this like when we talk about the patron client relationship in Rome being important it's 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 not just lip service because that's the home cooking of the podcast like the entire front of their house was designed as a way for you to come and uh hold like for the master of the house to hold court and for people to come there and you know ask him for his help or you know, make business deals. Like the entire purpose, like the entire layout of the house is just, here's the person here. You're practically on a stage. The rest of the house is kind of laid out around it. And people come in your door, they can come in, they can come in your office and ask you for favors or, or do a favor for you in exchange for something you did for them in the past. It was like the, it was the entire focus of if you were upper class Roman, that was your job unless you were directly employed by the government. At, the, at, at any one particular time. Imagine that you have, like, I don't know, 5,000 broke-in laws. <laughs> but always their lawnmowers broke down, all this kind of stuff. I don't know. I just, I, I did want to emphasize, it's it's not always <laughs> like, um, uh, like a, a very common setting would be like, you're one of these guys, one of your mother's friends is, you know, she... She lives next to another widow and she doesn't have transportation to the bingo bingo hall on, on Thursday night. You know what I'm saying? Yes. It can be that. It can be like that. Um, And and one of the central insights, I think of your guys whole project, if I can be pretentious about it, is that, Politics is a force multiplier when it works with the grain of these existing sort of social networks. Yeah. And it spreads like wildfire if it does so organically through that. 
And you, it is very, very difficult to kind of replicate that just by throwing money around unless it's going into channels of people who trust and have that long-term relationship. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there is like a, uh, there's a sort of a magic bonus multiplier that happens when a trend, like there is a transaction, like a, um, uh, uh, I bought a shirt with a Confederate flag online not too long ago. And that, you know, when I did that, you can't buy that through the normal uh, channel no. because our, not necessarily our government, but like our secret government has decided that that flag is, um, uh, it's you gotta go to, you gotta go to books illegal. a million online for that. Yeah. It's more <laughs> or less semi-illegal. However, however, uh, I just gave that. And so that's a trusted transaction. However, I just gave that guy money and he sent me and he sent me the shirt. Now, but when you have a patronage relationship, there is, and it doesn't, it's not how much money it's the thing over time and the trust and that there's a lot to it. And, um, I do need to, uh, and I, and I, my, my theory isn't totally developed here, but there is, there's something magic that happens. I, I think that humans are kind of like, we're really in tune to this, that this, this sort of activates special things in the back of our head. That this is this is more or less like um, like how I don't know. There's some magic. It's sort of like if you it, take more, you will get someone's loyalty and political enthusiasm more effectively if you give them a hundred bucks ten times than if you give them a thousand bucks once. Yes, yes, and like if you if you want if you set conditions on that, like like that would be that's counterintuitive because like in, in like a math game or game theory. Well, setting conditions would would lower the the amount of of cooperation. Yeah, but that's not really how people work. Um, this is this is mm -hmm. sort of a special part of our brain. It's kind of like you can take any eighteen year old male and sort of hand him a sword or a gun, make him march around the woods, and you can make him a soldier. And that's not like, and it it, it like why does that like really really work? And it doesn't work the same for like thirty year olds. That does, they, you know what I'm saying? Okay, I mean, here, let me let me throw up a counterpoint now. Not even disagreeing with you, you're just saying like this activates a special thing and it, it works better when it well, goes. I, I mean, I, I do want to like like this theory needs to be like carved into its essential parts. So yes, bring up bring it on. All right, so like uh, Claudia said that politics work best when they go with the grain of this and that supercharges it. And you're saying that this is activate something special part of our brain. No, I don't agree. With, with the phrase that way here's there's the other way to point patronage politics are the only real kind of politics everything else is entirely fake and uh, what we conceive of as politics outside of that is just people who've been playing money games with uh like with re fractional reserve banking and and like and currents like and printed currency like you can I mean, there is some, uh, uh, sorry, there is some element of patronage involved in uh, our world in the last like 80 years. Of course, the pay, the client groups uh, never really include the most productive members of society for whatever reason. But it's, it's the only kind of politics that are real. All the other stuff is just fake. It's like the story that you tell people as an excuse to make them, I, I guess, not overthrow you for taking their money and giving them nothing in return. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like this is it's, that's that's all there is. There's really nothing else. It's like that's the re the stuff. Politics outside of patronage is a Santa Claus story that you tell people 
but but in reverse. This is why the the tooth fairy uh, took your teeth and didn't leave you any money. I agree with that. However, unfortunately, like patronage politics competes with things that I do think are fake because like uh, patronage politics does not have you already named the most powerful force that its main competitor has, which is uh, the national debt which is just creating money out of nowhere. That is extremely powerful and it competes with it. It's sort of like, um, I, I mean, I consider progressivism a religion. However, I think it's a fake religion. Like in, in, in fact, like if you were to cut off all the government money to progressivism, I think it would disappear overnight. Well, so hang on. I'm so glad you brought that up because recently it might've even been on the live stream four days ago. Mark, who had said that same thing a few of my appearances back, that the new successor ideology or whatever is a hothouse flower, and if it's cut off, it will shrivel up and die. But Mark, you were backtracking on that and saying, oh, you're not so sure about that now. Well, what, what, I, uh, what, I, what I meant to say there was that like it wouldn't happen. You'd like to revise and extend your remarks <laughs> is what they think. Yeah, went over to edit. I kind of stumbled my way back there. I agree with him on the, the the basic point here is that if you cut their if you cut them off from the money, you're going to cut them off from the power. What would be left the people who would not disappear into the wind and just go back to whatever they were doing before? Are the I call like the Shakesville. You don't know if you know what the Shakesville. You listen to our HTML making episode, right? Well, oh, uh, this is uh, Shakespeare's sister and all that. <laughs> you know, I I uh, I'm, Tumblr. I'm, I'm I'm aware yeah. I'm aware of all internet traditions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. T- like the Tumblr people will stick around for a long time because that's all they got, and it, for them it is like that religion's it for them. But like the trendy people, like those women who here's a good example. This super loaded, and all, but I'll say it anyway. There's all these viral videos of these college girls ripping down uh, posters about yep. uh, uh, Israel Palestine conflict, whatever. Uh, those girls, if you look at them. They're—I don't want to say they're high status, but like they're not the dregs of society. They it, it, twenty years ago they would have been uh, dressed in American apparel stuff and doing something totally different. And and if you cut off that money in in a year or two, women like them in the future will be doing something totally different. They'll go along with whatever wherever the juice is. This was that was P- uh, P.J. O'Rourke said in the eighties that his test for which ideology had the wind in its sails. Uh, was where the attractive young women flocking to. Yeah, and I mean, not all of them were attractive, but they had you know decent, nice clothes. They weren't weird people. They weren't ashamed of what they were doing. They were ro- they were rolling with it. And I don't think those people are going to jump ship immediately because that's their ho- the whole point. There is they're chasing status, and if there's no stat, if there's no money in it, there ain't no status in it, and that's it. But there will be just like there are still cringe pagan people who worship Thor and stuff and uh, Satanists and stuff like that, they'll still exist, but they're not going to be high status anymore. They're going to be the opposite. They're going to be people that you wouldn't want to invite to a party that you wouldn't want to be seen associating with. Those people will stick around for a long time. This is the perfect segue back into Augustine. We've actually been talking about this dynamic just on a different plane the whole time. Because which is it that's happening as he's growing up is, you know, when he has his convert, you know, so he's this professor of rhetoric, seems like a big deal. 
And then he has a convert. He's fully converted, baptizes, renounces, or at least claims that he renounces his esoteric elitist ways. Goes back to Africa. His mom dies before they leave. Goes back to Africa, and then he's essentially press ganged into the church. He's kind of told, "No, we need you. You are gonna be a bishop." He's like, "Fine." He becomes a bishop, and then he's providing some kind of leadership in a quasi political role, at least as a bishop. Is this, and this gets uncomfortable because this is a religion, you know, we have different denominations, different approaches to us, but this is a religion we all share. But it's one thing, if you're hiding in the sewers and it's 100 AD or 250 AD, and if you tell people the truth about what you think, you will get your head cut off or worse. You know you really believe that. You know, you, you... your test, your fire forged at that point, your, your, your martyr made, maybe that's what he means by that name. You know, <laughs> um, when your guys are taking over and when the money's going to them, it just seems like a different feel. Well, there's this please, You have to refresh my memory. Uh, he tells a story about one of these figures is somebody named Valerius or something like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. He's telling the story. About a, 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 of a Roman of high status, and this is after the persecution, so it's not a matter of he's afraid that Diocletian's going to throw him to the lions. But uh, he doesn't want to, he's, a, he's secretly a Christian, and he tells his friends, like, you know, secretly. Um, um, oh, is it, is it uh, Victorinus, maybe? Victorinus, thank you. I, I, I got my Roman names mixed up. Victorinus... Is quote unquote bashful about uh, about his piety to to the Christian religion, and uh, is this is this where the quip about uh, does the do the walls of the church make the church? I think is that so. What this... Yeah, I think it is. I'm looking for it. It's uh, it's probably in book seven or eight. So yeah, do the wall yeah do the walls make a Christian? Like like Victorinus is yep. he's doing a cope excuse. He's saying like well, and. This there's this works because there's an element of truth to it because he's saying like well being in the walls does that is that what makes me a Christian do I have to do that and he and this is a great quote because it's it's part it's true to some extent because like for example Constantine when he is whatever however you want to phrase it converting whatever he's doing like a lot of Romans of his time period did they're sitting in their uh, cubiculum in their bedroom reading books yep. in private by themselves. They're not going to the, you, you can't go to mass or whatever. You can't do that stuff. You can't have a, a vacation Bible school. You'll get killed. So their, their faith is something that's personal that they took these books. They took these accounts, they read them and they, and they had this spirit, private spiritual thing that happened. So yes, and the, Victori- quote, the, the quote here is Victorinus was afraid of offending his friends yes. who were important people and were worshipers of these devils. Yes. He feared a great torrent of ill will falling upon him from the height of their Babylonian dignity. And and he, yeah. He didn't want to look like a he didn't want to look like a provincial rube believer in Jesus Christ around his cool pagan friends because they're going to make fun of them for joining this. Oh, that's perfect. That, and yeah. so then Augustine escapes the trap of being the Hicklib. What we're seeing here in Augustine <laughs> is he is prey to the Hicklib thought pattern, and then he somehow breaks out of it. Yeah, because like 
here, here's the, and this is one of those things that these are always muddy stuff, and this you can kind of loop this back into Augustine's. Uh, now, now I'm doing it the other way. Saint Augustine's views about, well, sorry, his his proclivities for uh, wanting to sleep with women. Uh, I saw this famous Cope statement being made. Uh, we won't get into who said it, which denomination, but the idea was that, well, actually the most virtuous person is somebody who did what he did and lived a life of lust and, and went away from it and, la- and later became someone who was upright because they gave up uh, this stuff. While the person who's lived their entire life chastely they didn't have a choice, so they're really you should not view them as well. And Augustine mentions this himself, like why in his writings, like why do we, you know, we feel happier about the story of a woman, the woman who lost everything and regained it, than we are just someone who's never had troubles in their life. But like that, that's that's bullshit. Like it's not, it wasn't good that he went through the early part of his life catching the clap and having out children out of wedlock with his mistress. That That's not good. And it's not in the excuse, like the excuse here we're supposed to take from this from Victorinus is that, well, I'm just trying to, I don't want to pray in the street like a hypocrite, but no, the reality is you're ashamed of your religion and you're trying to hide it from your friend, your cosmopolitan friends because you're embarrassed. And that is, sin, that is sinful. That's not, it's not uh humility. That's coward. And, and I, and I, and I think we've, come a long way to solving the riddle of why uh, the intellectuals and so forth convert to Catholicism instead of baptism there. Yeah. I mean, precisely because I, you know, I've been to a Pentecostal church. I, I, I'm Southern Methodist. So we're like, we're not as hardcore as Pentecostals, but you go to Pentecostal church, people are yelling and they're getting really, they're doing things that like, in a Methodist church, people might say, mm, you shouldn't do that. They're getting the spirit, and getting the spirit is, like, if you're in it, great. If you're not in it, it's kind of frightening. The phrase we use is hanging off the ceiling fans. Right, but that that is, that is that's low status. To, to Well, it's low status if you're Christian. If you're any other religion, the, the libs love your outsized statements of My, faith the, or whatever. That meme template of, you know, here's a, <laughs> here's a here's a church building, you know, Schopenhauer's not impressed. Here's a pagoda in Japan, Schopenhauer's jaw falls to the floor. Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so... Augustine is still embarrassed, you can tell, because he, did, he, he lived with this woman for years and had a child with her, and he refrains from using her name. Yes, he never mentioned, so this is just to, for the people who didn't just read this. Um, so he alludes a couple times that he has a, you know, what we would call a common-law wife. You know, he's been living with a woman, I and mean, maybe he has other things on the side, but he's been living with one woman for what seems like a decade or more. Yeah, yeah he said he was faithful to her. That's right. I'm sorry. I apologize for forgetting. He, he says, I was faithful. You know, this wasn't a fully blessed marriage or whatever, but, you know, they were living as man and wife. They had a kid. And then his mom is like, this is not an appropriate connection. And his mom sort of makes him give her up, right? And then when he goes to Italy and his mom follows him to Italy, um, he is going to get married and convert and baptize and get married. And he keeps putting it off, putting it off. But he always needs a woman. And, you know, he may be a little too hard on himself here because it's not just always lustful or whatever. He probably wants someone to 
you know, talk sweet nothings to. It's all a package, right? You know, it's all it all comes together. But the son that they have, but you're right, he never mentions the woman's name, which is odd. Uh, he does mention the name of their son, which is Adeodatus, which would be the Latin equivalent of, of Theodore, you know, a gift from God, the thing given from God, which is an interesting name for people who are not ostensibly Christian or, or even religious at all at this point to, to give their son. And he says this son is amazing. His intellect is amazing. He's smarter than I am. I was so proud to see him grow up. He got baptized at the same time that I did, and then he dies. It doesn't say why, right? He dies like a year later. He died young. I, I looked up the son after I read the book, and it was, I mean, I'm sure that somebody, like a scholar, could give you more information about it, but it was, it was really light on the details, other than they said that people thought, not just his father, other people thought that he was going to be brilliant like his father was, but he died, you know. Yeah, like 16 or 17 years old. And, and this gets into the marriage stuff because what's interesting is as, <laughs> as we see Christianity sort of taking over society, which is what's clearly happening during this time period, it is still, uh, you know the line that like a, a, a religion is a cult that just lasts long enough? Right. Like, yeah. you know, Christianity is still... Um, you know, it's a couple generations since, so, you know, uh, uh, Constantine ends the final persecution in the three teens. So this is 50, 60, 70, 80 years later when Augustine's in, a, a young adult. So, but there's, st it's still, Christianity is still sending off the gamma rays of <laughs> the earlier period when it's more separated from society and when it has a lot harsher uh, messages and lessons to people. And you definitely see this in Paul's letters when Paul's like, look, obviously the best thing to do is to not be married, not have any <laughs> uh, contact. Uh, you know, I sort of admire the people. Who, he says, be like me at one point. It's not exactly clear what he means by that, right? Um, there's those lines about people who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. <laughs> Again, think of heaven's gate. Okay, well, by this time, mid-300s, late-300s, it's legal. It's no longer being persecuted. It's definitely in the process of taking over. And apart from the Julian speed bump, it's, you know, by the time Augustine's a, a grown man, it is taking over. 395. I got it wrong. It's not the Edict of Milan, like I said a couple times ago I was on. It's the Edict of Thessalonica is where Theodosius, I think, says everybody in the empire is now a Nicene Creed, Catholic Christian, don't mm -hmm. at me. I'm going to kill you if you disagree. <laughs> right, like, but Augustine still seems to think that the best that that having a wife, even a, you know a Christian man marrying a Christian woman, that's still like not okay. Uh, well, all right. So I I, I don't I, actually I'm going to throw out the I'm going to do the Dan Carr thing. Like I'm not a theologian scholar. I'm a I'm a semi literate hillbilly who read a book. You get these hints from uh, uh, St. Augustine. Like, okay, for example, he has a conversation with his boy Alpheus where they decide together that, well, Alpheus talks him out of getting married, right? And this happens before his conversion. Yes. This happens before he's a Christian. So his buddy Alpheus, like, this is back when he's a re uh, doing rhetoric and Alpheus wants to be a philosopher or whatever. He goes, bro, if you get married... You're not going to have time for any of this stuff that we're like all this important rhetoric and, and philosophy. Uh, what we need to do is just 
uh, pros before hoes. We need to just <laughs> hang out here and, and, and do this. And he's like, you know what? Actually, you're right, Alpheus. Uh, and that was before he converted. So yeah. it's like there's obviously uh, I have it in my notes. I'll just I'll just read it. Uh, the, he was more afraid of marriage than death. So like I'm guessing that there was something. The, the call was coming from inside the house mm-hmm. when it came to it. There's a great line in when he had this conversation with Alpheus was that he that loves danger so fall into it. <laughs> <laughs> the the but and and this is when and you're right that he hasn't converted yet, but he's sort of. Remember, you ever go to the mall and put like a penny in the thing that it it goes around and around and around and around and around yeah. and then fall? It's like that. He's orbiting ever and ever and ever closer to it. But yeah. He hasn't taken the final step yet. But they form like a commune. He says, yes. we're going to get together. <laughs> He's like, a bunch of dudes are going in on like renting or buying, I guess, a villa. Yeah, and they had already decided who was going to be the manager and who was going yeah, to be the guy. Like, this is sort of, you know, the cliche of you're having a bender. You're like, guys, we should buy this bar. We could all run it together. You know, it feels like that. But what's weird is he says a couple things. One, it seems like some of these guys are Christian, some aren't. Some of them are married and some aren't. Yeah. Some of them may have their mistresses, you know, prostitutes, whatever, come in. Others may be totally celibate. Others may have wives. You know what this made me think of, though? It made me think of beatniks in the 50s or hippies in the 60s, you know, in communal living and sort of or bohemians in late 1800s European cities, you, you know, the, which is not normally what you'd associate with the Christian adjacent side of things. It but sounds like a group chat, Twitter group, right wing group chat to me. It, 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 it really does. The, the funny part about that story was like, yeah, we made all these plans. And then someone said, Hey shit, uh, we should like run this by our wives. And he was like, and the next line is like, yeah, it didn't happen. After that. <laughs> <laughs> Many such cases. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing I loved about this book and I wasn't expecting this, I was expecting it to be a lot harder. I mean, it, it's obviously a weighty book, but it's like human beings just don't change. No. Like you can see him. This is a person who lived in the four hundred eight in the in the the fourth century. He's a, he's a you can identify him immediately. You could like I said, he you he could be a, a somebody you know on social media. He could be one of your boys that you hung out with that read too many books. It's just it human nature does not change. Speaking of which, I think I don't know. This would be a good time to sort of step in and. Offer something for the ladies. I know this comes up a lot of like, what is the role for the, for the Ray Pete fans out there in the audience? You know, <laughs> yeah. what is the role of women? You know, especially in the right wing politics and stuff like this. You know, you all, you always get this stuff about. Um, it's of course slanted towards the men or whatever. And so, what is the role for when? Well, I mean, this is one of the classic classic examples, which we also see with like, uh, you could say people like. Alexander, I think, and uh, many others that um, St. Augustine's mother, through being a tiger mom, (laughs) saves him from rank lib tartary and forces him to become a good man and a great man in the historical sense. Yeah, saves him from hell. Yeah, (laughs) Call your mother. She made him a great man. She she forced him yes. kicking and screaming to be a yeah. great man. She did. And he has, and, and we haven't really emphasized this enough, I think, for the audience, like, the second biggest character in this book, after Augustine, is his mom, Monica. And, uh, you know, he has a 
weird relationship with her, but, um, it, you know, he, he flees, literally flees from her at one point. Is this when he's going from Africa to Italy and he sort of tricks her and kind of tells her he's leaving on the next boat and then leaves on the first boat and sort of just <laughs> pieces out and sort of, it's unclear whether he's speaking literally or not that he can hear her screaming and wailing and he's just got to get away from her. But then she follows him to Italy you know, there's kind of a sense of him on some level being suffocated, but also, I mean, he goes, if you add it all together, the, the the parts of the book where he's talking about his mom's character and how she always wanted the right thing for him, how she dealt with his dad, who seems like much more of a mixed bag at best, uh, you know, it, it's it's a 20% of the whole book probably is him talking mm-hmm. about her. And Mama tried. It, it, yes, and he, um, Mama tried and Mama succeeded um that was uh, do you ever see oh what's the home invasion horror movie with Liv tyler do you guys ever see this the Liv tyler yeah Liv tyler's in a so home invasion which is the scariest subgenre of horror because it could actually happen uh. um well it's a little bit of a spoiler but uh there's a scene where you know that the bad guys are in the house because one of them they they play mama tried on the vinyl you hear the uh. ne- you hear the needle drop and then the song starts playing and you're like oh this shit's about to go down um, so it's, it's a ominous use of that song. Um, but she, after he converts and she's ecstatic. Cause when, when he finally gets baptized and says, I'm done with all this nonsense, I'm done with the Coomer life. I'm done with the mistress life. I'm done with the Manichaean. I'm done with the, even the Plato. I am now like everybody else. I say the creed, I go into the front door like everybody else. She has won. Like she knows that she has won the struggle with the devil. All right. And side note, if we're not supposed to be Manichaean, what is the devil? But let's put that in a box. Maybe we'll get to that in, in the in this next hour. Um, and then the final scene with her, and where I stopped rereading it this time, because everything that comes after is sort of more philosophical and theological and less mm-hmm. autobiographical, they are preparing to go back to Africa. And they're in Ostia, which is the port of Rome. Uh, you can still see it. It's almost as well preserved, in some cases better preserved than Pompeii. Uh, the shore has moved out several miles now over the millennia, but you can see where all the docks and the warehouses and stuff were, and you can see these apartment buildings, or at least the shells of them, they were a couple stories high. Uh, Monica and Augustine, you know, the winds are bad, and so they're just stuck there for a long time waiting for the winds to change, and Monica's dying, and they kind of both know that she's dying. And they have, like, a rap session together where they're talking about faith and God and religion, and he describes it in very strange terms, but they... You know, he has this almost out-of-body experience, this full-fledged religious experience where he's talking to his mom and he kind of becomes convinced that they've transcended themselves out of physical time and space and they're somehow anticipating what heaven is going to be like. I think that's what he's saying. And then she yeah. dies basically immediately after that. And I think that's he refers the, to the ecstasy, like, ecstasy in the original they're sense standing of the word. out of themselves. You know, they, yeah. they, this is what, when we whether it's dancing, I hate to say it because it's blasphemous or profaning, but whether you're dancing at the club or whether you're at mass, you are in some sense trying to tap into and get out of yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's when he reaches that moment and then she dies. And it's almost like she had to, cause like they both got to where they were trying to go. So for the ladies, uh, you know, this is written by a man and it's got pretty instrumental views of women. A lot of the time as a kind of old ball and chain or, or, or worse, but, it is this very front and center amazing portrayal of a woman who also comes through. We know that in the same way you know Augustine, you know Monica. Yeah. Well, he, he goes to great length talking earlier in the book about how she tried to get, when he was young, she tried to get a priest to, to 
talk to him and get him to convert. And because she was trying to get him to convert for years and he wouldn't do it. And you know, she would she would weep and she became almost hysterical because her son just refused to be saved. What we would call be saved. And the priest tells her, "You need to just calm down. He's young." You just need to give him some time to work through all this dumb bullshit that he's doing now, and then he'll come around, which is true. But, like, you can understand why she would be in – she's a terror, a terror for his mortal soul. You know, if he catches up – like, one of his friends catches a, a nasty fever and dies, well, that's it. He's not baptized. That's all she wrote for eternity for her and her son. So it, it's, it's a, a real problem. And that kind of uh, – so I, I, I think they're, like – Three in the autobiographical part, there's like three sections. There's the section where he's talking about his youth and his dissipation and all that stuff. Then there's the part where he kind of jumps between the he jumps between not just Manichaeism, but he also flirts with not flirts with he becomes a Neoplatonist. Yes, which is uh, my best explanation for what that is would be like uh, late stage, we're trying kind of what Julian tried to do, yes. but not, not exactly the same thing. We're going to make Hellenism cool again. And, and but uh, in, in his text, he explicit, it was, I, it was so gratifying to read this. He, he goes into this long, I don't want to say spiel that, but he gives this long explanation of why materialism sucks. And, the the great analogy made was if if we you know, if we believe this if we believe in materialism then well an elephant is bigger than a mouse so there's more of God in the elephant than there is in the mouse and you read that and you think yeah that sounds insane that can't be right and that is like his the quickest refutation I've ever I've ever heard of of, of trying to have a materialist religion and and, and the Platonic phase is. You know, it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that that is the the penultimate step before he finally bites the bullet and gets baptized. Because, and, and this ties in with what you were saying about the unbaptized baby or the unbaptized teenager, you know, if they, if they die, well, too bad, you know, they're going to hell. Think about, you know, the concept of the virtuous pagan. And this is in Dante. They're kind of hanging out outside hell in limbo. They're not getting tortured or anything. Mm-hmm. They're just not allowed to go to purgatory, let alone paradise. And this is where, you you know, Plato would be there, presumably. Virgil, Virgil yeah. right? People who didn't ever have the chance, but they were kind of on the right track, is the idea Virtuous here. pagans, yeah. And he just says, you know, when he's going through the Platonic part and explaining his time there, he is much less hostile to that than he was to Manichaean, um, which is weird because Manichaean... I said on an episode or two ago, I, I, it was the we were talking about Cyrus and the Josephus one, mm-hmm. and I said, "Oh, Cyrus was homies with the Jews because you know dualism is pretty close to monotheism." I, I'm not actually sure that's right. Having thought more about it and looking at the way he talks about this, because there's a big, big, big difference. And I don't know enough about Zoroastrian. You know, I could be totally wrong, and there could be more nuance to it. But there actually is a huge difference between saying there is only one uncreated being that is outside of time and space that creates everything. And then evil is just a deviation or falling away from that on the one hand versus the good God and the bad God are of equal status. And it's like a, a arm wrestling you know, match and a knife's edge as to which one of them is going to win. Those are actually two very different vibes. I do wonder sometimes whether uh, I've said I wouldn't talk about any particular denomination. So I'll just say some denominations of Christianity might go a little more in the dualist 
you know, if, if they spend as much time talking about the devil as they do about Christ in their sermons, that I do wonder sometimes, but that's, that's you know. Just I, I had the same thought, but ironically not about that. I was thinking, well, but you can lump these two together. Like, there are aspects of, use the G word, Gnosticism, where, you know, uh, if you ask the average American theist, sorry, American Christian, and I'm not going to speak for other people, if you, Catholic or or Protestant, they would probably, like, have some, like, uh, harbor some feelings of, like, well, yeah, there's the, there's the, physical world and it can you, things can decay and it's it's gross but the spiritual world is more important and like it, I know it's on a continuum you like you that to some extent has to be true but you can you can take it like uh, two ways like one is that oh well yes this is an impermanent world but it's still a beautiful world and it's important or versus none of this matters the world is gross and disgusting and evil and there are people who are Christians who can follow along that spectrum and I think the, the dualistic thing works the same way there are some people who grant the devil more power than others would and, and like uh, St. Augustine in, in his book kind of lays this out and I, I paraphrased it earlier poorly and I'm going to do it again it's like the, basically evil is the absence of good mm. it's not it's not its own thing it's you, it's uh, I wish I could I wish I had written down exactly how he phrased it do you remember yeah I'm looking he has a couple formulations of it I just need to find I have my notes which of course I can't read now um well okay so well is this when he because he keeps coming back to this this is he's like a dog with a bone right where he's yeah. just gnawing on this so here's one formulation let me see if this works he's saying um here he's talking about the will whether your will is divided against itself or not and he says the 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 when 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 you when you have a failure of will when you when you know you should do something but you don't do it or vice versa. It is a sickness of the soul, which is weighed down with habit, so that it cannot rise up in its entirety, lifted aloft by truth. I don't think that's exactly the one you were going for, but there's variations on this where he says, it's not that there is an evil and a good, and there's a tug of war between them. There right. is a good light. It's the sun. It's analogous to the sun. We know what it is. We know where it is, but we turn away from it, almost like it's too bright for us yes. to look at and that it's a falling short rather than a falling into the hands of some equal or almost equal power over there. Let me, let me phrase it in a stupid person way. When you think about like uh, water and how clean your water is, you think of it as like, well, this water is pure. I just boiled it. It came from a mountain spring. This is the clearest water. Or this is a mud puddle. It's, it's got dirt in it. You don't think that this is a struggle between dirt and water. Hmm. You think of this as like, well, this water is not as watery as it should be. There's other stuff in it. I need to get rid of that. It's not a struggle between two two forces. It's just you you fucked up with your water. There's, you need to, you, you need to clean. You need you need cleaner water. That's it. There's nothing dumb about that. You know why? What is the parable, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, what are you going to use to flavor it? That's exactly the same point. <laughs> so there's nothing dumb about that. That's flowing, that you're flowing straight from the scrolls there. Here's an example of the, uh, oh, the rank degeneracy of our age. So um, <laughs> in what, the in the 18th century, Father Juan Crespi, uh, you know, one of these... Um, you go out west, all this air, all this, a lot of this territory was was sort of founded by uh, these uh, monks and priests of the Catholic monks, monks and priests who sort of accompanied people like um, 
you know, Magellan and uh, right. along all these places. Anyways, um, so in the D and D terms, that's your cleric. Yeah, yeah, or the um, in modern, <laughs> you know, well, yeah, in the legend states in eighteenth century, Father Juan Crespi named a lo- local dripping spring in California Las Lagrimas de Santa Monica. Santa Monica's Tears. Today, we're, uh, today been renamed to Sarah Springs. Okay. That was reminiscent of the tears that Monica shed over her son's early impiety. And this is how they became to name the Santa Monica, California. Whoa, whoa, what? It's named so, after his mother? So both coasts, in other words, St. Augustine, Florida, mm-hmm. and then Santa Monica, California. Wow. Yes. Now. Wow. Okay. We, we are living in a, 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 a Augustine's kingdom then. Now, this this one's uh, as good as that makes you feel. Okay, get ready for this. Maybe I should have gave you the bad news first. Um, 20, I'm frightened. I'm 20- frightened of what's about to come up. Yeah. This is uh, this is not too unrecent. When was this? Uh, oh, 2022. So in 2022, uh, CBS produced a um, supernatural horror TV show written by a staunch Roman Catholic. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like, you know, episode to episode, there's a new horror thing, like, like the X-Files sort of. And in the fifth episode of season three of the TV series, Evil, so he, this guy in the show, he gets into sort of religious art and whatever, and he starts, you know, reading uh, Augustine or whatever. And then an angel visits him in the night after he calls, he, this guy calls out to St. Monica while he's jogging past a demonic apparition, right? So he, some guy in the show, he sees a demon. So at night he calls upon St. Monica and uh, to be de- delivered from, delivered from this, this monster. He goes to sleep at night. In the crescendo of the episode, an angel comes to him and says, you know, uh, you know, whatever, detective, uh, detective Lawson or whatever, I have a message for you from God. St. Monica was black. Hmm. Man, these people are just pathetic. Like, that, they're not, that, they're that, not even trying real. anymore. I mean. And, and the angel explains that although in tr- she's traditionally portrayed as as a uh caucasian she is in fact black and, yeah. and that's the uh the thing of the episode just, i don't know this made me think of the uh they're, they're they're making a new cleopatra movie and i was sort of laying my comments out on the twitter and, and, and uh i do that so i can get my thoughts together for a podcast and it, it just made me think of like people were talking about like how is this going to be accurate or not accurate and it's like it doesn't really matter whether they what the final call is because Either way, Cleopatra's history has become hotepized. And what I mean by that is right. the only thing right. that she matters now is is a is her history is just she's important. She's important. She's an important figure because that's all we care about if we want to therefore fight about her ethnicity. And so this this is just like and so even if you win the argument of like well, you know, the the, the Ptolemaics were, were, I mean, you're still kind of cucked if you're sort of forced in this thing where you're like, well, the Ptolemaics were Greek. Uh, yeah, but now all you're doing is just like, well, this is an important figure. 
And do they go in the white column or the black column or they they middle? Yeah, we gotta get there. We gotta get there twenty three in me. Yeah, we gotta hear your provincial ang- anxiety ridden bullshit, and you gotta map it all on the human history because you don't have anything better to do. You have and, and you do it in this clumsy way. This is like, like these things aren't a black pill. They're they're the opposite. It's like this is people we people who have no juice left whatsoever. They're just weak and lazy now, and they're just trying desperately to. To you know, force their their stupid little worldview in the into onto things that have nothing to do with it. And it doesn't work. Which is a big contrast with when Freud was you know LARP was was reading about Hannibal and, and getting off on it. That was there was a lot of energy behind that. Maybe, maybe best to not say more about that, right? But just that you know, 150 <laughs> years ago, whatever. Very yeah. vibe than that's that's a wellspring that never seems to run dry. Yeah, if you <laughs> it's going strong for a couple thousand years now. If you want to oh, yeah. root for Hannibal, you better bring up elephants. That's that's all I'm saying. That's that that's how <laughs> that's how you do that because that is baller. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. It just it it is like that is so beautiful the story of the priest and he's like and he, you know he sees yeah. this giant falls. He's like this reminds me of. Monica's tears. I don't know. I mean, that, that sounds almost like self-parody, though, that what you're describing in that in that TV show there. Yeah, uh, it's a little much. It's a little it's, thick. It's even 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 by the standards of today, that's that's a little that's a little on the nose. I, I don't want to say that Robert King, who was I don't know, the article just said this guy was a um, big time Roman Catholic goes to all church. But I don't know if he wrote that episode. So you know, you threw out a bone to the ladies earlier, Bog Beef, by describing Santa Monica, Saint Monica, and how she's such an important figure, and she's a good person. She not only saved her son's soul, but he became one of the foremost thinkers of of our religion, beloved by everybody. Huge W for women. Let's get into the te- in part of the text that's a huge L for women and make them mad because this is that's a lot more fun. <laughs> There's a period after, I guess it's around the time that he becomes a Neoplatonist, and this is what I was talking earlier about how you know he's writing for a, a, a weird a audience we don't quite understand because like he's got to go to great lengths to explain why Manichaeism is stupid, why Neoplatonism is not is not necessarily stupid but wrong, but like we're like okay these are things that don't exist anymore. Sure. Yeah, they must have been wrong. The other thing he's got to fight with, and he's having these big public disputes about, is astrology and divination, oh. but specifically astrology. And uh, he, and there's a wonderful story like where he talks about his friend's father, who's so into astrology, he makes star charts for his family pets. <laughs> And this is something that is still around. And uh, he, there's also the story where he takes two people, like one who's an important person and one who's a slave, and they were born in the exact same place and the exact same day and then down to the minute. And he's like, well, you have to admit, it, either these two people are the same or astrology's bullshit. And, you know, he does the uh, the Albert Einstein meme, you know, mm-hmm. where he's, he, 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 debul- he debulks their weird religious beliefs with one weird trick. Now, now, why? I mean, you know, astrology and star charts and all that, that is the traddest thing on Earth. I mean, that, that, that predates Abrahamic monotheism by several millennia. And I don't know if it will ever go away. It, it, it seems eternal. It won't. It's like, it's like, I mean, it's not animism, but it's like the same impulse. There's just something about the stars that make people, well, like he kind of explains it in his text that like, is the problem with, with astrology is like if you can check the alignment of the stars and predict the future and detect these things, then 
you that goes against having you know this book that tells you how how you should live your life <laughs> these two these two things are kind of mutually exclusive they were still more discouraged by the prophecies of their holy women who foretell the future by observing the eddies of rivers taking signs from the <laughs> windings and noises of streams and who now warned them not to engage before the next new moon appeared Ooh, is that is that caesar describing druids or germans um germans and <laughs> yeah. of course caesar considered that bullshit but he yeah. but he but he did consult um yeah. male uh got not astrologers they would be the uh, augers which the is chickens right and the birds and all that bird shit i don't think women i think i think the bird shit is the, is the male thing that sounds right it was so, uh, it was also like cow. Um, you cut you cut up the cow and you look at the entrails. Yeah, too, right? yeah, yeah. If it's and liver, it's hair is spicy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. If it's liver is symmetrical. That again, the liver thing that goes back to Mesopotamia. There's a whole. Um, I'll do what I did uh, last time and, and note something and then say it'll have to be a future episode. But we could go deep on Mesopotamia for another one if Hell we wanted. Yeah. There's all kinds of weird stuff lurking there. But yeah, was it one of you who started, who dropped the, who coined the line that astrology is racism for white women? <laughs> I hope so. I think that, I, I. That I, sounds like you. I mean, that sounds like you, Bob. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it but does. I, I don't think I, I don't think I, I, I you, probably got that from somewhere you else. popularized it. You, you know, to, memes, memes <laughs> and one-liners want to be common property, right? You, you, you can rent them, you can't own them. Yeah, but <laughs> exactly. that, that doesn't feel like something I would have come up with. It feels like something I would have heard somewhere but but it is I, I've noticed, and this is uh, not not to self dox or anything, but I heard uh, some very right wing women talking about this at length not that long mm -hmm. ago, and these are not like alt right or distant right whatever women. These are you know Fedzaki like mainstreaming normie conservatives, and they're they're all about it. Well, yeah, well, I mean it's it it, it it is because and why it's because and guess what? Um, uh, AI is racism for. Uh, for uh, uh, robots, tech bros, computers, <laughs> because all this is is uh, it's people are trying to find. There's a lot of different. There's a there's a Mac Daddy law right now of the land. The Galactic Constitution is the Civil Rights Act, and if you can find some way to say that, well, actually, we chose you because the stars were aligned, or actually, we chose you because an AI shows you you're a pisces that's why we hired you yeah it's it's all um yeah and if, no. if you listen to rap music all black people are um leos and tauruses they every you ever notice that every rap song everybody claims to be a leo or taurus i don't know how it does it but you you remember chris rock's single no sex in the champagne room <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. Do you remember the, the 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 spoken word part of it mm -mm. or it was all spoken word but um Here's a horoscope for everyone. Aquarius, you're going to die. Capricorn, you're going to die. Gemini, you're going to die twice. Leo, you're going to die. Scorpio, you're going to die fucking. And uh, my my roommate, when that song came out, my roommate was a Scorpio, and he would play that song and go, yeah, every time that line came up. Yeah, that's, sorry, that's one. That's, it's all the cool animals. It's the ones everybody claims, yeah. whatever. 
I mean, I'm a Virgo. What the hell is that? That that's not cool to have that as your to to, to be you know the, <laughs> the the Chad Leo and then the Virgin Virgo. That's not a quest. If you read, Virgin Virgo. <laughs> if you read the generic, if you read the generic description of the personality types, all the rest of them are like, oh, this is kind of a cool person. And then Virgo is like, you're an erotic mess. It's not. It's not okay. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not down with that. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, by the way, they have ways to get around that. Just like yeah, you know that they, they. Oh, you can mask. You have like a fake VPN for your for your birth for your star sign. Well, you might be a Virgo, but you were a Virgo. Oh, the moon was waning yeah. or whatever. And, and yeah, you were you're a Virgo, a Virgo waxing Leo, all that kind of stuff. They, they, I'm an indigo child. I, I, yeah. Let me, I, I, uh, let me give you my guys. Where was Jupiter in the time? Yeah, yeah. Let me give cool you my you guy's are. number. We'll we'll get you something sorted <laughs> out. <laughs> okay. Well, you're, with some badass star charts. We'll get you fixed up. What now? Here, I want to. Um, so we're rounding third, or, or maybe then, maybe then some here. But my 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 master plan of breaking the four hour barrier is is, with, <laughs> is is within sight now. But I want to note something because we were talking about where we started was kind of elite esoteric versus plebeian. Do you notice the actual thing, the actual crisis in his mind that brings on his conversion and his acceptance? Okay, fine, I'm going to get baptized. We're doing this. It, it, it's really interesting to note. He's in his little commune, or, or I don't know if they, you're right that they don't do the full commune, but you know he's hanging out with the homies and he's in his study house. And a guy, I think it's another guy who's also from Africa originally and who's, who's a Christian and who's kind of high up in the government, comes by to hang out. And he told, does he give him a biography of Anthony or he, he tells him about monks. He's basically like, there's this amazing new thing. Have you heard about, you know, it's like the uh, Marvin. This is that new sound you've been looking for, right? He tells, <laughs> he tells Augustine, uh, he must give him a biography of, of, of Anthony, of, 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 of Anthony the Great. Because he's like, you got you to check this out. There are these guys and they just go. And they just live out in the middle of nowhere and they just pray their asses off. They just do the right thing. And there's no women. There's no, it's no women. And he sort of, it's like the light bulb goes off and he freaks out when he hears this. He's not like happy to hear it. It like destroys his worldview. And, and one of the things he says, I want to make sure I get the quote absolutely right here. So he says, um, it's near the end. Of course, now I can't find it, but it's, well, I'll just paraphrase it. He says something to the effect of these unlearned people are punking us. These are some provincial nobodies. They probably haven't read Cicero and all of that. And they're doing the work, as Oliver would say, right? They're, they're out there doing it. And we, with all of our power, all of our social capital, all of our education, all of our understanding of all these ideas are just whoring or engaged in uh, mental masturbation here. That is what brings on the crisis. Later, back in Africa, Augustine, when he's in the church and rising up in the church, doesn't do quite a monastery, but he definitely has, like, Augustine's hideaway where, I mean, he can hang out and think big thoughts or whatever, but in a explicitly Christian context that time. But it's a weird, like, we were talking about, or, you know, the esoteric politics of today and all the weird lifestyle trends and the Gnosticisms of today— but apart from straight up cults like Heaven's Gate, these people do not seem to separate themselves from society and kind of tend their own garden and contemplate stuff. They seem to be kind of all up in everybody's grill all the time, which is, <laughs> which, which is weird. I don't like 
so maybe that sort of puts me on the wrong track. I mean, but when I is when I hear <clears throat> overbearing mother, and then uh, monasticism, I mean those two things go together. Mm. Like you know, mm. like sweet tea and grits. I mean that is like uh, uh, there was. I mean there's there's a theory that like there uh the basically. The main reason that Protestantism is more was, I mean, sort of uh, like, I don't know, like English Protestantism, go back to the ways or whatever, was was uh, so much more uh, anti-feminist was basically that you had no way out. Whereas, like, at least in Catholicism, if you had, were fed up with your overbearing dad or whatever, you could join a convent. And <laughs> I, that was always told to me in the perspective of a woman. But I mean, well, I'll take a day as a Catholic. I'll take it. That's, I mean, that's, that's a W for us. But Augustine, well, maybe not. I, I guess maybe not from the patriarchal perspective. Maybe it's an L for us. Well, I don't know a lot. It's, it's, it's not, I, I don't mind. I mean, I've always thought that the, and certainly the people that rule us, that that do so uh very skillfully and keep us in a box uh always leave us overflow chambers for a lot for everything and uh they give us little play plays anyways uh, i'm never really against the idea of having sort of overflow uh, uh protection like 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 sort of like you know uh i would not pass a law that would like mandate the richest people in society like cannot do x or y they want to i would like tax the hell out of it or something but you know what i'm saying um just sort of like systemically i'm not against the idea of um of sort of overflow protection but well, you also don't want it be, well because you've always identified you've always put a good point on why did caesar become caesar because they left him no other choice yes you don't want to leave someone no other choice this is the yarvin's you know re retirement plan thing Mm -hmm. you, you want people to think, hey, if you just give up, go over here, it'll be great. It'll be better than it is now. You'll get more money than you have now. You just won't be running things anymore. And that that's Caesar's war plan all the time is um, actually uh, we can resolve this, you know, uh, is, 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 is that kind of thing. Uh, so I don't know. But but perhaps that wasn't that wasn't the way that I'm just saying I whenever I hear overbearing mother. And I hear monasticism <laughs> because that is one way you can get away from your other overbearing mother. Is there you go to uh, what, what's the um, in Greece, the peninsula where they don't let women on the peninsula, <laughs> and it's, it's all it's Mount Athos. It's all monasteries, and like even the joke I think is even female animals aren't allowed on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some guy there that's never seen a woman. The, the holiest, yeah, the holiest man in the history of the world. <laughs> It's funny. It's funny that he was from this time period. I never thought about this, but it's true. He like when he's someone's explaining to him what a monk is because there'd never been a monk before. It's this cutting edge technology. I mean, there have been hermits and stuff in the past for different religions, but for like Christianity, this is pretty much a new thing. It's just, hey, have you heard about this crazy new place where all these old guys wear robes and get funny haircuts and you just hang out and read books and and till the garden. And it sounded like heaven to this guy who he wasn't escaping his mother. His mother, by this point, had already died, right? 
no, she's still oh, around because okay. it's. But she's she's she she's still around because he converts, and then she's really thrilled about that, and then she dies. So this is right on the edge of that. But okay, he, gotcha. But he's managed to, you know, he gets away from her for a while. He does. It's funny because he's seen it. This is one of those very sophisticated ways that he's layering the different ways he felt at different times in his life. Because when he was young, and especially when he was like a young man who was a teacher and stuff, he wanted to get away from her and get away from Africa. When she shows up in Italy, he doesn't seem too bothered by that. He's almost like, oh, it's good to have her back. But this is one way you can definitely yeah get out is I, mean, I guess be you know join the army or or join a uh, join a monastery. Um, the the I wonder if the reason why the monasteries start forming is precisely because Christianity is now joining the mainstream. It's becoming the mainstream. It's taking over and it's having to make a lot of compromises. For one thing, all of a sudden you're like, hey, I thought Christians weren't supposed to get married. I thought they were all supposed to lead a celibate life. All of a sudden, like all of these people who are already married are just signing up kind of as a family package. What's up with that? So that the people who want the hardcore uncut stuff, maybe they do stuff like uh, joining together in monasteries and eventually convents. Um, th th this is big. I mean, this is a stupid question. I guess I just don't know enough about Protestantism. Are, are there Protestant, like are high church... Anglicans, do they do nuns and stuff, or is that just Catholicism? They probably do, but I mean, it's there are, <laughs> uh, you know, there are, there are there are there's a lot of places in England where the Reformation never happened. Mm. So, so even they just though cross out the Pope and write in the King or the Archbishop of Canterbury, but other than that, it's the same deal. Yeah, I have no specific knowledge, but I'm sure. But that would make me think that yes, because there's there it's essentially like that. Um, uh, yeah, I would, I just want to put in a sort of historical marker here because I was uh, like, so 25 years around that time, about 25 years before St. Augustine's born is the Council of Nicaea, <clears throat> which I think that would be sort of like at, from that point on, Christianity is well defined. Yeah, there's the, the Nicene Creed. I think that's what, yep, here we go. We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of all things. It's sort of like, this is it. This is the lowest common denominator. If you can agree to all this, you're in. Yeah, we, we've sorted out all the uh, the heresies and stuff like that. We haven't sorted. We'll, we'll do a lot more sorting in about another thousand years from this yeah. part. But, uh, but all the, the sort of uh, uh, discussions and things like that, we've decided what books are in the Bible. We've decided this is the religion, and that sort of happens before him. Anyways, we continue. It, it, so, and and you know, for people who want I mean, this, gets back into the elitist thing. For people who want the special secret knowledge, the the teacher's edition with all the answers in it. The moment there's a written down public thing, then anybody can listen to and be like, "Yeah, sign me up." Uh, that's not going to be good enough for the for the esoteric types. The the, the you know, if if it's written down in a hundred words, and if everybody can kind of you know vote with their feet whether they like it or not all the thrill is gone all the cachet is gone yeah yeah although i mean that, that that doesn't sort of rule you out i mean you know like in in judaism you got the cabal cabalism sure, yeah. and Protest oh, yeah. protestantism you could join the masons and catholicism you could join the deus Opus Dei, or Opus there's, a, Dei. Yeah, there's a couple of them. Uh, Knight, knights of malta or a boy closter is a knight of malta yeah yeah so i mean um however yes i do see what you're saying <clears throat> well the, and this 
this thinking of, you know, people are going into monasteries, he is ascending to the heights of first the academic, you know, what it's an anachronistic term, but, you know, teaching and, and getting paid to teach and give speeches and stuff, you know, on the one hand, everything's great and he's excited about everything in the world. On the other hand, I think we touched on this before, but, you know, when he writes this book, his autobiography, The Confessions, he's probably, what, 40 or 50 when he writes it. It's the very end of the 300s, beginning of the 400s. You could kind of tell yourself, you'd have to ignore a lot of warning signs, but you could kind of tell yourself, oh, Rome's going to go on forever. And in the East, it did go on for another thousand years. But in the West, it's going to end about 50 years after Augustine himself dies. The 476, a somewhat arbitrary date, but when the last German warlord decides he, he's going to be the man, he doesn't need to have a puppet little prince, uh, Roman, to prop up. And I guess maybe a good way to uh, not just round third, but slide into home here now on, on what we're doing here. It's kind of an elephant in the room here. We've mentioned Gibbon a couple times, but just glancingly. Uh, I went back and looked at the main parts where he talks about Christianity and the rise of Christianity. And he is treading very carefully because he's writing in, you know, the 1770s. Uh, mm. It's pretty safe territory for him to beat up on on Rome and Catholics. You know, England, would, I mean, notwithstanding the crypto-Catholicism of the high uh, English church, you know, they're all about, yeah, forget Rome, they're, you know, forget the continent, all that. But he seems to be hinting, you know, he's writing in this Straussian esoteric double writing and he's writing very ironically, but it, he leaves you with the strong impression that he Gibbon thinks that Christ, that, that the takeover of Roman society, you know, that the conversion of Rome to Christianity is one of the major reasons why the empire collapses in the West. I got to disagree with, but you know, yeah, uh, in Enlightenment era, Britain, I don't think it was that dangerous for him to, to you know, throw these, throw some aspersions towards our, our boy. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say something our, like that. Our boy and savior? I was going to say, our boy, our boy Jesus. <clears throat> it wouldn't be too dangerous for him to throw shade at our Lord and Savior because, you know, uh, some of our founding fathers basically did that too. They were. But they were always, it, it, he, he's being ironic about it, but he's always careful to say this was, of course, an absolutely true thing. And it was the divine author of the religion. But isn't it weird that all the miracles stopped yeah. the moment that we started getting reliable historical records? So he says a lot of snarky things like that. Yeah, because he was a because he was a goblin. <laughs> he was a goblin. But Eric, and, and, you're not the biggest fan of the Roman Empire anyways, though. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, here we go. We got some controversy I mean, going. Yeah, well, I, I, I said this is one of those things where you kind of got to take your medicine, and I, 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 it brings me no joy. But yeah, the Roman Empire are the bad guys. I'm sorry, it's true. Well, they're cool though. But like, that's the coolest thing when we when we were kids and you played Tie Fighter. Yeah. I mean, you wanted to be in the oh, yeah. in the Tie Fighter. You didn't want to be in the X Wing. You didn't want to be. Well, sorry, you didn't want to be Luke Skywalker. He's a whiny little. You want to be Darth Vader? It's cool to be the bad guy. I know. Like, yeah, they're the bad guys. Right, but if they're the bad guys, who are the good guys? The nah. the, the Celts, right? So this this is what I here here's my postulation. <clears throat> Before we even get to that question, is that um, it's the Germans? By the way, the Germans. <laughs> I guess. No, there are in fact good empires and bad empires. <laughs> there there are good honor cultures and bad honor cultures. 
Okay. Did did the well? So let's so let's start from kind of kind of baseline here. I'm I'm exaggerating and I'm going to cut corners here, but essentially, the Christians take over. There's a statue of the goddess Victory. What is it? Is it in the Senate House? Mm-hmm. And they take that statue out and put it away because it's a demon. It's an idol. And then uh, the Empire stops having victories. So if you're a pagan, if you're either a straight up atheist, which is kind of an anachronistic term. If you're, you know, a philosopher or if you're a believing pagan, you got a pretty strong case to make to Augustine of like, what did you think was going to happen? Well, I mean, here's the best, the best example for this argument. I mean, I think is that, uh, literally Christianity is cited for the, as the reason to burn the sibling books. That's still, that's still sticking in your cry. You want those books, don't you? Like I that, do. Uh, if you could. If you could save one thing from antiquity, would it be the sibling books? Yeah, and like they were, they were the holy books of the <laughs> You're Roman. Such a Caesarbu, it's yeah. it's really unseemly. Yeah, they they were the holy books of the Roman religion. By the way, I mean, what was what did Jesus say about Caesar? About what? About the sibling books? About Caesar? Uh, uh, give, give him what's his. It was thank, Tiberius. That was Caesar, yeah. though. Thank you. He was talking about Augustus. No, it's talking about Tiberius at that point. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, but, yeah thank you. I, I, we'll get back to that. His no. face is on the, his, oh, whose face is on that thing? Well, you better give it back to him then. Well, it, but it, anyways, the Sibylline books, if any people don't know, were basically the Bible of the Roman religion. However, it was like um, they're in a glass case, and you don't you don't go read them unless Rome's in trouble. They're esoteric. <laughs> Is what they're 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 break glass in case of emergency, but they're inherently esoteric. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, what, what are you getting at? Do you think that there was a secret in the sibling books that would have stopped the Roman Empire from collapsing? No, but I mean, like the, the these were like this is the Roman Bible is destroyed on behalf of the Christian religion. Okay, Stilicho, right? The the if it was Stilicho, he's not emperor, but he's one of these warlords. He's probably half German or half whatever goth. And and yeah, as those guys into the 400s start to be running the show, it's weird because in our head we think barbarian, pagan, you know, Christians, Roman, civilized. No, like they they were. This is open up a whole. They were Caesarus. They were well. They were they were, but they were Aryan with an I, not a Y. But they were, you know, the whatever you call it, the, the Jesus isn't really God. He's like Hercules. He's like God Junior. That was their thing. So they're not Nicene, but they're you know, close enough, right? They're certainly closer than the pagans are when they start running things. But I mean, there is a sense, I, I guess the question is, does every empire have its life cycle and they were on the way out anyway? And so what the Christianization of the Roman empire does is it kind of is a, is a, is a net for people to fall into or it's, um, I think that's an argument. I don't think it's a great argument. I mean, the thing that's just, this, the thing that's this sort no, of. No, 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 no. We, we got to settle this right now. Right. I'm not letting you guys change the subject. Well, you're going to admit it right now. Oh, you, both of you, I know, I know you're about your ethnic backgrounds. Just admit it. We're all Germans. English people are Germans. If you got... We're Germans. Mm. Yeah, it just well, hang admit on, it. Hang on. We're in some, in some Celtic probably in there. Yeah, totally. well, see, that's the that's the uh, that's our who's the Lebanese guy that writes the the book? Talib. Nicholas Talib. Right. So if you yeah. ask, a, if you ask, Sorry, if you ask him, uh, yeah. then he has no amount of of yeah. uh, Arab it, descent. 
His haplogroup group is pure Phoenician. If you ask, if you ask a, uh, if you ask an Englishman, they'll say they have no Celtic descent. They're all, we're all Nordic. <laughs> we are, I think we are more Nordic than we are, uh, Celtic though. From the perspective if you're, of if the- you're six, five or whatever, three or whatever you are about, then, then whatever, what, you know, you're, you're big guy. Then yeah, then you're probably, <laughs> then, then that's, then that's straight up Viking at some point back there. From the perspective of the Roman Empire, like, I don't mean literally German as in, you know, German, German. I mean, like, you know, Ger- Germanic people settled England, English people, Angloids. We're, we're, we're a Germanic people. The North, the North Sea homies. Right. That's the, they're, we're the good guys. And I mean, I'm not saying that Rome's like bad. I hate Rome because Rome's awesome. It's cool. But like, they were our enemies and we beat them and we won. And it's cool that we, that's why it's like, it's cool to, do their paraphernalia and imagine being Julius Caesar and stuff because it's cool. They're cool. They're fun. But yeah, they were the enemy and we did beat them both like politically military, like three politically military and religiously eventually. So, you know, yeah, that doesn't work because, uh, I mean, so you can ignore the last part, Claudius. That that was, that was just me talking to Bobby. It's all, it's all, it's all good. That doesn't, that doesn't work because the, the, the the British that were that uh, sailed America that believe they ruled the world consider themselves direct descendants of of Roman Empire and Romans consider, yes were Romans really descended from Aeneas I mean probably not how did they refer to their race what was what did they say their race was well there was well, originally no 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 the people who sailed across the sea what did they say their race was if you asked them what was English they'd say we're Englishmen or the other word for Anglo-Saxon the founding fathers threw around the Anglo-Saxon word too. Yeah, no, they, yeah. Um, okay. Well, they had great... that, didn't, didn't Jefferson write about what, what's the cross with whatever the two original and the mythical ancestors of the Anglo-Saxon peoples are, like Crosswitha and Hrothwinga or whatever? He was all Jefferson was all about that. <laughs> yeah, I know so Franklin had some hot yeah, takes about it. <laughs> some based up say, but Bob, you're you're saying there's an intellectual descendant as well of, as like a genetic descendant. Yes. I mean, obviously, I Rome, agree with that. Rome is Europe, and which later becomes Christianity. How, how? Okay, there's one thing that has to go into this that that is important that uh, uh, always gets thrown around. And like, if you ever do a tweet about anything, you'll get people that uh, uh, don't get this. So, um, if people would like, go spend the next eight years of your life studying the philosophical concept of causality. Okay. Hmm. All the smartest people in the world, the same people, but Nietzsche has wrote about this a lot. Um, it's impossible to ever place a, a causal origin of anything happening. <laughs> yeah, None, that's true. Nonetheless, you do it anyways. And if, if you're writing with context, it's fine. Happening cells ontologically destroyed. <laughs> right. So, you, you know, you could say that, uh, I went to jail because I swung on the cop. Okay. Well, yes, you might, but would that have happened if, uh, you know, if, if Eve hadn't ate the apple (laughs) or offered it to Adam, you know what I'm saying? This, so, uh, there is no causality. Okay, but so it wouldn't have happened if core if core if a 36 pack Coors Light costs five more dollars, none of this would have happened. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, bring it, bring it down to something in between Eve and the Coors Light. Uh, <laughs> if if well, that arrow, if that arrow hadn't gone into, oh, what was his name, Harold Godwinson's eye in 1066, mm-hmm. right? Maybe that would all played out differently. 
or I mean, so I get this, the, I get, uh, I was sort of agreeing with, with Eric Prince lately. Uh, Eric Prince said that the reason why the Roman empire fell is because the soldiers wasn't paid. And so I, I sort of chipped in. I said, well, you know, uh, with a paragraph that said, actually the, the, the czar Nicholas's soldiers weren't paid. And that's why they, they didn't stop anyone from going into the palace. And, you know, you got a lot of people sort of attack me and say, well, yeah, but there's like a thousand other costs. Yeah, for things. want of a nail, yeah. The, the dialectic was, was you know, it happened because of the forces of dialectical materialism or whatever. Yes, which in this case, I mean, you can find, uh, in, in, in talking about as a complex system as the Roman Empire, uh, you can find a thousand causes, which, which nah, of course, I got one. by the way, I mean, we're, there is a, you know, there's a guy, all of this would come as, 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 uh, bizarre news to a guy named Justinian hmm. who was sure thinks he's the Roman emperor, right? Like, you know, who has a very Christian empire and it's right. Roman and everything's going just fine and dandy. But I was thinking about this because the new speaker, Mike Johnson, there was some quote. I don't think it's a recent quote because they're having fun digging up all of the extremely insanely based stuff. He said when he was younger, right. And maybe even some still today, but a lot of it when he was younger, 10, 15 years ago, there was one where he was on some radio show or something, and I even heard the clip, and he was saying many scholars believe that, you know, sort of sexual deviance is what brought the Roman Empire down. And, you know, I love you, Speaker Johnson. I hate to say it. It's arguably it's the opposite, right? Like, you know, when 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 Roman society is kind of indifferent as to, you know, all of these awful things that people get up to, uh, they're going strong. They're kicking ass and taking names. When guys like Augustine, who feel massive amount of guilt of even serial heterosexual monogamy, uh, start getting more power, uh, you got about two generations left, and it's all going to fall apart. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, Gibbon, uh, Gibbon was completely wrong, and his his veiled accusations were more about him and his, like I say, he was a goblin and his enlightenment person and you know he, he's got he's got a, he's got an axe to pick with dad he's not yep. he's mad at dad i'll tell you who destroyed the roman empire uh, it was augustus when he established the praetorian guard Ooh. thank you for my joining my ted talk Ooh. Mm. praetorian guard eventually became kingmakers it led to a period of massive instability where there were new emperors every three days because the army could just mm. decide who was the emperor and i and why nobody wearing a cross doing any of that? They nope. were all they were all dyed in the wool. Well, not 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 necessarily Italians, but they were Romans. They were worshiping Jupiter and you know scheming. Okay. And this is so, what happened. So, in other words, there was so much momentum and inertia and built up imperial capital behind it. No pun intended. That after the crisis of this of the third century, the West keeps going for two hundred years. But that is like the the descent is what you're saying. And it was kind of all it was going to be over a lot earlier. It just took a long time to play out. How would you if you had to characterize in one sentence how the Roman Empire after the crisis dealt with their manpower issues for the military? How would you describe it? Outsourcing. They okay. More and more turned to auxiliaries. If I if if I could if my mic wasn't attached to the desk I'd drop it. That's it. That's what happened. And it took yeah it took it took two hundred years. Just like you know, uh, an example of let's say the American Empire, uh, when they outsourced uh, our version of military manpower, your industrial capacity. When they sent it away, 
we began we be, the clock started and as time gone on that it becomes more and more obvious this is a problem you might not have realized it in well you probably did realize it in the 70s but in the in 1991 i don't think people would have predicted things would be where we are today but they had we had been inexorably placed on this path a long time ago and if you really want to go back and assign blame well it was Augustus who destroyed the Roman Empire it wasn't Christianity the reason why it was so I don't want to say easy but why the the we're talking about within three or four generations it goes from this fringe persecuted religion to one that is in control of the state it's because uh, everybody realized hey wow the the whole world's falling apart and it's time for something new and this you can kind of finish this to say why Rome's not. I mean, when I say Rome's a bad guy, I'm being bombastic. Do you know why why you could say Rome is not the bad guy? Because after Constantine, Rome and this I guess lasts until the 1400s. Rome becomes another word for Christendom, and so that is the legacy of Rome, Christian Europe, Christian Near East. That is their legacy. The um couple couple of historical examples so uh <clears throat> uh when israel was buying up ter- when the the early zionists were buying up territory in the mid- middle east uh you know i don't know exactly who, you, know, you have palestinians and i don't know I remember if the, this this early period if the uh the ottomans were still in control of that i think yeah this is during the ottomans are still in control of that and um you know they're there they're buying up territory it's not a big deal and uh the they're sort of talking to local leaders and these uh, and the locals say, Hey, well, uh, so what do you guys, so you guys are buying up the territory. That's cool. So um, uh, when, when can we, when can we send our guys up here to get jobs? You know, uh, you're going to, you guys are rich guys from Europe and all, and all these different places. You're going to be buying up all this farmland. You're going to need people to work the farms. Of course uh, you're going to be having like a little, you're doing a Rhodesia. Right, you guys have got a little Rhodesia thing going on here. That's cool. It's not. It's not a problem. And I can't remember if they did that. Let's just say they did that for a while. But I can't remember if that's historical accurate. But let's let's say they did that for a while. But and then one day they the there's the Zionist Israelis come by and they say, hey, you remember that thing where we were, you know, we were going to be like Rhodesia? Yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. Now we're going to have uh, we'll we'll work the land. We'll work the land. So you guys, you don't have to. Um, actually, we'll work the land. This isn't going to be Rhodesia. And that was like the light switch that went on. It was like, uh, okay, this is going to be a problem. You know what I'm saying? You want to do Rhodesia? That's fine. You want it, but you want to do this? <laughs> that's different. Now let's go to America. About 2011, why, the Northern Virginia and Washington area, metro area, became the richest area in, in the United States. Uh, right now, we have the worst recruiting 2022 was the worst recruiting year since 1973. Mm. <laughs> wow. Um, I mean, the, the numbers are in 73 since, since the, since it became clear to most people that the president was going down for the first time since we were, you know, losing a war clearly for the first time. Wow. And we're back. We're right back there. Yes. Uh, you can look at, you could sort of look at uh, things like our naval production, which uh, which uh, has been well documented by by Malcolm Shayun. Um, the military is getting rapidly weaker, rapidly weaker. 
regardless of how high you think it starts, I mean, by any metric, it is getting rapidly weaker. The amount of stores of ammunition and missiles we have rapidly weaker. As fast as the military becomes rapidly weaker, and specifically the Navy, because uh, the Navy is the imperial wing of the military. That's what you need for empire. Uh, you could think of the Navy yeah. like the legions. Um, so the Navy, the legions, is in fact the worst off in all this of all this. Uh, the the Marine Corps, which is like the uh, the soldiers of the Navy, is has has like been completely redesigned to take on far fewer missions. It is it's just in free fall. As fast as that's happening, the imperial capital grows and grows and gets fatter and fatter and richer. I was looking at some of these beautiful neighborhoods. They have their uh, it, uh, false church. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's like a little paradise. Someone wrote a hit song about that a couple months ago. <laughs> it's it's just beautiful. And, um, and it gets richer and richer every single day. And it grows jealous and angry. We can see what happened to that 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 boy who tweeted the uh, the Hillary tweet. Mm-hmm. That happens because the, the our Roman senators are jealous and angry and scared that it's going to come tumbling down. Well, this this is a clear trajectory, and so and you could literally say that right now, like the only way to turn this around right this second would be a massive direct changes to uh, things like the federal police and uh, I mean, they'll, they'll probably try to do what the empire. Tried. They'll probably, if they can get away with it, just all, like all those people who came across the border, they'll want to recruit from them because they have no outside attachment. Well, that to, that to would the, certainly heighten the parallel. Yeah. yeah. That, 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 I mean, that will be, I mean, at, that I point, would guess, not, at that point, it's not a parallel. It's just direct repetition. Yeah, uh, although the I guess the question could be, the thing about Rome was it wasn't the uh, internal p- people who did it, kind of like, you know, you had the gothic hordes and stuff that were across the border. Some of them came across, whatever. They're being pushed in. That doesn't exist here, but I guess it doesn't matter if like you're if the if the empire itself is bringing uh, millions and millions of people here. There won't have to be an outside horde. You just have the horde right here. Although I don't know if that if that really works in modern times. I'm not sure that 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 strategy will be as successful. As, I mean, it wasn't successful for them in the end, but they got some mileage out they of did. it. I'm, I'm not sure you get even a generation out of this from now. In fact, it might precipitate the downfall even quicker. You then compare, say, Iraq War One to Iraq War Two. Someone posted a graphic of like what the United States military going to war in Iraq War One looked like, and it was like little, like little Pete, like a uh, little movie, but like in each, like each plane represented like like hundred planes, and each little man represented like a thousand men, and mm-hmm. you just see like like it's just like. You're looking at the the U.S. military in Iraq War One. It's obscene. I mean, it was just completely like you are seeing as 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 powerful as the Romans were behind their power. You're looking at just this, just a rain a, a rain of terror coming down on your little country. Now you go to Iraq War Two, and basically the most successful general late into the conflict realized that the the actually the best way to win this 
was literally just pay off these these tribes and stuff. Just give them money. Well, this is we saw. This is basically what the <laughs> Romans did late in the war. It was too hard for them to project power that that deep. Not just the Romans. I mean, this happened to uh, Charlemagne's empire too. And in it, uh, what's the word for there before? Uh, Merovingian. Yeah, thank you. I always I always mess it up. The Merovingian, like the last the last Merovingian kings were doing this too. They were buying off their their invaders, and it worked exactly the way you would think. And as soon as we as soon as we our boots were off the ground in Iraq, all that time and money just instantly went out the window. And it's just like, oh yeah, now we're, you know, hey, we're a vassal state of Iran. It's just you know because at the it, end of, at the end of the empire, before things <clears throat> fall apart. You don't have the military might. You can't project the military might anymore, but you're still loaded. You still got it tons is, of money. It is always target. a temptation for a rich and lazy nation to puff and look important as to say, though we know we should defeat you, we have not the time to meet you. We will therefore pay you cash to go away. And that <laughs> is called paying the Dane Geld. But we've proved it again and again that if once you have paid him the Dane Geld, you never get rid of the Dane. <laughs> Rudyard Kipling. Uh, He's I probably, never heard. Kipling is probably the most good old boys aligned, like great literary figure. I, sorry, sorry to cut you off, Bob, but it was too perfect to do there. It, it, that's what people try, and it works for a generation or sometimes three. But yeah, whenever I reading Rudyard Kipling is like the uh, the mirror version of that. Um, what is it that Himmler quote where he says like. Uh, uh, what does Himmler say happens? It makes him reach for his gun. Someone talks about uh, culture. Uh, when culture. I hear the word culture, I, I loosen the strap on my automatic. Or, or there's yeah. a million versions of that quote, but yeah. When I when a Rudyard, when, when I hear a Rudyard Kipling Kipling uh, uh, poem, I reach for my gun, but in a good way. I'm like, let's go, <laughs> let's, go <laughs> let's go kick some ass. You, you do it to engage in the time honored Bastion and Scotch Irish tradition of shooting guns up in the air in celebration, right? Yeah, and then I'm then I have dysentery and have eight three days in the the some British out British outpost in the yeah. Middle East or whatever. Yeah. That but, was the, a good but, but when we're there, but the the only. So we got into this the first time I recorded with you guys a little bit, and it's uncomfortable to think about. But one thing that also happens in the late stage of the cycle is weird ideas start coming along. Mm -hmm. And from the perspective of either a, a Zeus appreciator or a Pantheon appreciator, because the whole point is you're not supposed to only appreciate one of them, or even a, a high-minded Platonist, neo, neo-Platonist guy, they reacted to what they saw as this effeminate Eastern death cult all of a sudden, you know, taking over. And they describe it in terms that sound a lot like our reaction to the successor ideology. And I'm not trying to equate the two in their essence, but I'm wondering if there's a similarity in the function that they're playing in the imperial life cycle. Because if you, you know, does, does, and this gets all the way back to where we started of if he's, you know, if, if Augustine is making the switch from playing the academic game and the speech giving game to the church, this is obviously, and we can tell because he wrote hundreds of pages about it. This is obviously grounded in a sincere crisis of conscience and a reaching out for the good and the true and the pure, I don't 
doubt any of that. I don't fault any of that. But fast forward another 100 years, sorry, 200 years, fast forward 200 years to Pope Gregory. At that point in time, Rome's population has decreased by about 90%. It's gone from a million people to probably less than 100,000 people. Uh, he, Gregory, is the one who's trying to keep the aqueducts flowing. He's the one who's just trying to keep people from getting eaten by wolves. They're trying to fend off, uh, uh, you know, the, the Byzantines, the Lombards, everybody. You know, at that point, you're running the government at that point. And, and I don't care who you are. And I don't care how pious your intentions are. I don't know if you can run the state and still be good. And, you know, this gets into the just war and all that stuff. We don't need to get into all that because we are, I think we're about to, if we haven't, we're about to hit the four hour mark here. Um, but do you, do you see what I'm saying? Where like, there's an uncomfortable sense in which once the true religion takes over, it almost immediately seems to start getting corrupted because if you're making decisions about who gets to eat and who gets the water and who lives or dies, uh, it seems very hard to do that from a Christian mindset. Uh, <clears throat> well, what, what are we, which part of that am I responding well, I to? Know, was a lot. There's a lot, there's a crisis of conscience of my own there. There's a lot coming out, but I, mean, I guess, you know, and this I, is getting into not just steel man and Gibbon, but trying to steel man Nietzsche here now for some of this, right? Which is, you know, Nietzsche. I mean, I don't, I'm not a huge Nietzsche fan the way that a lot of, a lot of folks are. But if you tried to sum him up in a sentence, it would be, uh, you know, good, good, good is a mask for power. Well, <laughs> I mean, so as far as I mean, I, I agree with the basic thesis. Not I wouldn't word it like that. Uh, 10,000 times percent. This is something I would have said a lot. Maybe Merrick, you can push back on it. Cause I don't think you at least have the, the constitutionally agree. Maybe. Which part, uh, which part I push it back on. Okay. Well, I'll say this. So, um, <clears throat> this, this sort of informs a lot of my sort of Machiavellian, uh, uh, stuff, which by the way, it's not like if I was a true Machiavellian, I would not like even talk like that. Right. I would, I would be selling you some kind of fitness program right now and shit like that. <laughs> so like this, this goes a little bit deeper than that. Right. So, um, like I really do honestly believe that, um, morality does not scale at the organizational level of things like government. And in fact, if you take a good God fearing man and you make him a King or you make him a Senator, the, the same things that are sort of that are good at the personal one-to-one -one level uh, are totally gone. And now at that, he is no longer a good God-fearing man. He is, in fact, a, a king. And kings don't have, and I'm, I'm using king for you're the mayor, you're the dog catcher, whatever. This, it does not scale. And I believe, I, I totally agree with Machiavelli and things like this. Like uh, a good king will need to lie, keep his sheep protected, he, and you, it, it is it is no, no longer the case. There's sort of the classic example is after the Pope is given uh, the papal states, immediately he says, I need, and I've said this a thousand times on the show, so I'll be really fast, uh, and immediately he goes to the, the, the guys that choose who the Pope is, and he says, hey, we're not going to do it that way anymore. We're going to use my son. 
And uh, and he starts and he says, now, oh, by the way, I have a wife uh, because these are all like these are all basic sort of state security things that they have. They don't happen for no reason. This is why every king has to operate a certain way. Uh, so there is a lot of there's a lot of very, people smarter than me that disagree with me about this. But that's what I believe. Do you the the context of the quote power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is he's talking about the popes. He's talking about the popes as temporal secular rulers ruling over the middle third of Italy. Right. I didn't know that. That is all that is crazy. See the thing yeah. is I would agree with that but I don't think corruption is a bad thing. <laughs> okay, so um I, I don't I don't want to put words in Nietzsche's mouth. Well, uh, give me uh, Two sentences. Tell me what I'm refuting. Well, there's, okay, there's a strong form of this, which I don't want to, I have trouble saying even for the sake of argument. And then there's a a weak form. I always forget which one's the mod and which one's the Bailey. So the the strong form, and may Allah forgive me for uttering these words as Malcolm would mean, but the, 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 the strong form is, you know, Christianity is based on the morality of slaves. It's based mm-hmm. on resentment of the strong and powerful. Uh, this is bad stuff, basically, right? Like, you know, in the in the in the Bronze Age or in the ancient pre-Christian world, uh, people didn't get hung up on all of these voices in their head. They just said, if you're strong and you go kick ass and you look good, that's great, that's good. And if you're small and weak, uh, mm-hmm. well, uh, right, you take the hind tit. What? That's, so that's the strong version. The weaker version, which I think maybe there is that we would all agree with it, is this is, I think, what Bog, this is resonant with what Bog is saying. Um, Sort of like the quote at the beginning of The Godfather, both the movie and the book, is from, I think, Balzac, and it says, behind every great fortune lies a crime. And the idea is there's there's no version of reality in which a giant empire all of a sudden becomes the good guy. And you're saying they're the bad guys, so I think this might resonate with you, Mark, is whatever, by the time it gets to run what's left of the Empire, whatever it mutates into is different than the faith of the carpenter God-man. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the moment that you're, whatever your people, nation, however you want to phrase it, becomes an Empire, you've... Uh, you flipped over the hourglass, and your your sands are going to run out eventually. You know, you can get the you can get to choose to survive perpetually as a people, or you can choose to be an empire. You don't get both. I've said that many times before. Yeah. I still agree with that. Want to go back to the original thing? This Nietzsche guy um, sounds like a badass. Was he like a Conan the Barbarian type of dude? No, nah, he, muscles. He looked kind of like Rick Moranis. What was his job? What did he do for a living? He was a word cell. Okay, yeah. So these people who you know, say these things. Are they like, are they like Eric Prince type uh, nope. warlords? Are they? No, are they're, they... they're more like Vinman at best, and probably... a- academics. Right? Well, yeah, yeah. They they probably make Vinman look like Conan the Barbarian by comparison. Most of them, yeah. Yeah. If you were, if you really believe that shit that Nietzsche, uh, well, I'm not gonna say. It. If you really believe that shit that we just said, you wouldn't have to say it. You just do. You. Do whatever you That's do. You, you, it was the Malian, you know, the Malian dialogue stuff. I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm strong with you. I'll do whatever I want. You don't need to write a, a, a volume of books and convince people why you should be in charge. So really, what that is is it's word sale bullshit that mm-hmm. is like a, a sales pitch for why actually my position, my status position is not real. It should be higher. But damn it, this, you know, the the this guy died two thousand years ago on a cross, and 
it, because of him, it made everybody uh, really weak and gay. Not like me, this incredibly virile, powerful academic person. Yeah, I, I, you can see the flaw in that already, <laughs> just uh, straight from the jump. Like that's Here's that's a, a pr- that's a problem for them. Here's a quote. <clears throat> the consolidation of the states into one vast empire, sure to be aggressive abroad and despotic at home, will be the certain precursor of ruin, which has overwhelmed all that preceded it. Let me wrap this all back up into, into uh, St. Augustine for us, because, you know, the, the word, like, St. Augustine is kind of a word cell. He, he, pretty, he admits this throughout his autobiographical portion of his story and he he never really gets away from it because like you said the last part of it could be characterized as more word cell stuff but put to a different use but the the thing the struggle he has over and over again is that you can't think your way out of this problem this problem of existence you can't you can't use your big giant brain to understand reality you're not smart enough nobody's smart enough isaac newton wasn't smart enough saint augustine wasn't smart enough you have to eventually surrender, and I think I think he I think how he phrased it was something like that: God would vanquish him while his sins would please him. And he, uh, you, know, you can see it in the, his famous quote: "Yeah, I, I'm going to behave, but let me do it later. I don't I, I don't want to give up these things. I, I don't want to give up the vanity of having of thinking I can understand uh, all of reality. This is like what the the." dissipated youth of the neoplatonists stuff like and, and crap like that it's all him trying to use his big brain to 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 work out how the world works so he can be independent of this thing that will require him mm. to admit that mm-hmm. he is not the most powerful thing in the universe like and every person goes through this struggle like he he, he cleverly alludes to it in the beginning when he's talking about how he wanted he as a, a child treats everyone like a slave because the child has not grown enough to understand that it's not the center of the universe it is the center of its own universe it you're that that bubble doesn't expand around you until you get older and if the real story of his autobiography is that bubble growing larger and larger and larger until it finally encompasses something that I guess that you, you get, you become wise enough. You chase this wisdom to understand that you, you can't answer these questions. You don't have the answer or to steal from our last podcast. You have to have a higher power. You have, there has to be something that you're willing to, to bend the knee towards. And if you can't do that, well, then you can, write a bunch of dumb bullshit about how you should be the rightful master of the universe. But if not for my bad dreams, I'd be master of the universe, whatever it's, it's, this is the oldest story in, in human history. People haven't really changed since 400 AD. And I think you cracked the code there. You, you squared the circle there because, and Bob may not like this, but to synthesize what all three of us are saying, the empire was on the way out because all empires eventually are. But at near the last moment, you know, at the 11th hour, it was infused with something different. And in the same way that you make a cast of something, you know, so that when it dies, the bones or the cast or the death mask or whatever lives on. That's what I'm not trying to get Catholic here, but that's what the church in a lowercase c, not the religion, not the faith, not the word, but the human institution of it is the bones of the empire, is the bones of Rome. 
And that's what creates the bridge connecting the past to the future. If it hadn't happened and the Christianization of their empire hadn't happened, it still would have died in a horrible, messy way, but it would have been all for nothing. Whereas this was the vessel to carry on something else. Yeah. I don't know. Is Does the, the Nisian position, what does it have to say about like, um, what's so hard for me to, uh, and by the way, this, this does kind of agree with uh, a little bit the idea of, um, uh, I do think the empire does not see the progressive religion as being the religion of the soldiers yet. I mean, we could, there's been a lot of jokes lately that the longer that the, the military recruitment crisis goes on and the, and since, since the war in Gaza has started, now we've seen commercials for like the Marines and stuff that where it's all white men, which we haven't seen in a long time. Um, I, I don't think that, in, but Anyways, how, how does the, the whole weakness thing resolve with things like this? My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe as in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to all these be ready no matter when it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. Or duty is ours, consequences are God's. These are Stonewall Jackson, who is as badass as... I mean, this is the closest you're going to find. Uh, they didn't have, he died before they had photographs, right? No, no they had photographs. Okay. photos. But he, this is, if you see a photo of Stonewall Jackson, yeah, there is photos. I don't know what I was thinking. That. Uh, uh, a photo of Stonewall Jackson is the closest you're going to see to a photograph of like a medieval knight. This is a guy that, <laughs> that, that I mean, the end of the war, they had no guns and bullets. He, he, he commit. He 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 ordered. He sent an order to to Richmond. Said, "Send us pikes. We'll we'll fight with pikes." This is this is the closest thing you're going to find a medieval knight. Uh, and I mean, where's the problem? So I don't know what would you say about that. Which of us? I right. mean, no, I mean, what's the steel like the the steel man of um? That doesn't sound very slave religion to me. No. <laughs> it it I I. You know, a lot of the stuff, uh, I mean, I mean, Bat, you know, this, this is a little unfair to Bat, but, but a lot of people have pointed out that most of his shtick is just Nietzsche with some swear words thrown in. Which is you know? fine. I mean, Nietzsche's like, Nietzsche is one of the people like, um, like St. Augustine were like, if you yeah, are a lot there, to- you, you can't really run away from certain, you know, you, you can't you can't really run away from certain people like uh even people that that aren't you know that you could say like people like darwin or freud or something uh are serious people have to be taken seriously and or you know he likes schopenhauer as well you can i mean i like i, I could feel i could feel fine doing a podcast forever and never saying anything that was not taken from like julius caesar or something you know what i mean these people mm-hmm. are serious people and uh, I don't think there's a problem with that in particular. I am haunted by the question of whether America's Rome, and if so, how far we are on that life cycle, on that arc. Uh, I don't know if you guys are haunted by it exactly, but it's certainly something you, you, you guys talk about and, and appear to think about a lot. And in the earlier times we've talked together, we've focused more on the earlier aspects of it. Uh now, you know, zooming in on Augustine is right before it goes over the cliff in the West. But something we've also talked about a couple times is 
you know, I wonder what a Greek Orthodox person would think listening to this discussion, and probably some will. And they'd probably just think you guys are so far down the wrong cul-de-sac that you don't even, <laughs> that you don't even realize it because a you're all arguing over which uh, branch you know not arguing but you're you're from different branches of a you know twigs off of a wrong branch on the way this tree evolved both in terms of the faith and in terms of government and society because we kept going for another thousand years we the G Greeks and the Byzantines Christianized all of Eastern Europe Central Asia whatever you know throw the Khazars in there from the spicy. And, you know, we, it, it, the, the, the impossibility of stepping outside yourself, right? The impossibility of ever finding some truly objective, transcendent way to see everything. As you said, Mark, and I pushed back on this at the time, but yeah, we're basically all German or North Sea, whatever, in the grand scheme of things. That's pretty parochial. That is the group of people that, you know, conquered the whole world and now most of them feel pretty guilty about it, right? But, but you know, it is just ultimately one branch of the tree. Uh, and, and I think maybe that's a good way to bring it home, is at the beginning and the end of the Confessions, Augustine sort of points out in as many words, there is only one truly outside, objective, all-encompassing, universal perspective, uh, and it ain't ours. And because we are created souls in created bodies, we can only get the tiniest little glimp and reflection of it. And he did as good a job as anybody ever has as capturing that reflection and writing it down. Uh, but it's still through a glass darkly. Mm, yeah. Well, I'd like to add on that the, the most important figure in the Roman empire was in many, many, many ways, the most Christ-like in terms of his basic orientation towards other people. The most forgiving person. <laughs> All right. Uh, no, look, you're doing it. I. Uh, JC, JC, okay. I, I, uh, in the parallels. Yeah. I, I dig it. The 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 Mongols kind of got confused and thought that Jesus and Alexander the Great were the same person. Uh, and if they had known about Julius, they might have thrown him in there too. Is really these must all be you know you know th three three masks of the same person. Uh. -oh. Now we start. Now we started another schism. Now we, now we start. The Trinitarian uh, controversy will have to be another uh, another time. They can